I want you to hear what the killer said on the tapes. I said it was the only time they showed a little bit of what could be interpreted as almost remorse when they talk about their mom and dad. It sucks to do this to them. They're going to be put through hell once we do this. There's nothing you guys could have done to prevent this. You've been great parents, taught me self-awareness, self-reliance. I've always appreciated that. I don't want to spend any more time with them. I wish they were out of town so I didn't have to look at them and bond more. Oh. I mean, as a parent, that is just don't want to have to have a relationship with them so it won't be real, I guess. Judy, I mean, this was the guy that you couldn't imagine performing an act so heinous. You know, is it that part of the tape? That What part of the tape got to you most? Well, all of it did. I thought we were sitting down to a 10-minute tape, and we were there for a couple of hours. Uh, it was just one thing after another that got to me. I was just surprised at the coldness. I hope they don't release this tape. I hope they don't release this tape or make copies. If people need to see it, they can go down there and see it, but don't make copies of this tape. If they make copies of this tape, they're going to be... There are going to be copycats out there like crazy. You have to, when you see, if you see this tape, you'll know what I'm talking about, and there will be another Columbine if these tapes are released. You feel strongly about that. I've seen the tapes. I know there are segments in there that kids will copy. I know that. Well, you, and, and again, I don't want to, um, as Peter would say, add fuel to this thing. But what, you, you said they talked a lot about the weapons and the receipts for the weapons and how much the camera sort of showed around the room a little bit? That I could not believe the amount of ammunition and weapons in his room. There should not be a copy made of these tapes. Our sheriff has made a mistake and we're going to pay for it. Well, we'll tell you what the sheriff has had to say. There's been an official apology. Um, I'll tell you what that was. And as you said, you're absolutely right. Harrison Klebold wanted the fame. They seemed to crave it. Uh, they did talk about who should direct the film. Should it be Quentin Tarantino? Should it be Steven Spielberg? Um, you know, who they wanted to direct a movie of this grandeur. And now dozens of people have seen these tapes. Today, the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office gave its account about what happened. They released a lengthy minute-by-minute -minute reconstruction of the rampage and their response to it. A judge ordered the release in response to lawsuits filed by many of the victims' families who charged the sheriff's department with negligence in confronting the killing spree. But if there were hope that this report would put the questions about the law enforcement response to rest, it didn't, as ABC's John Miller reports. The sheriff's report contained teacher Patty Nielsen's frantic pleas from the Columbine Library, where so many would die. And the report officially confirmed that the shooting of innocent victims lasted only 16 minutes, killing 12 students, one teacher, and wounding more. The sheriff's report underscored that because the killing took only a few minutes, moving in sooner would not have prevented more shootings. Some victims' families took the opposite view. If the gunmen had taken their own lives within an hour, why did it take police two and a half hours more Just to minute. reach the dead and the dying? Due to the impending civil suits that uh, we are involved in at the sheriff's office, further interpretation or to elaborate on the details of the report will not be possible. According to the sheriff's report, here is the timeline. At 11.19 a.m., the shooting begins. 
Moments later, a deputy assigned to the school exchanges shots and radios the sheriff's office. Okay, so we can barricade gun that. At 11.33 a.m., the SWAT team is ordered. The shooting has been going on for 14 minutes. By 11.39, seven sheriff's deputies, led by a sergeant, are on the scene. None of them enter the school. Students and teachers report the gunmen were inside shooting and throwing bombs. By 11.45, a sheriff's lieutenant takes command. The decision is made not to enter the school, to wait for the SWAT teams. 11.46, frustrated that their bombs did not explode, Harris and Klebold fire into the propane tanks, finally tossing a smaller firebomb, but the larger device still does not explode. 12.06, a full 49 minutes after the shooting began, the first SWAT team enters the school. A second team does not go in instead attempting to rescue students pinned down on the outside of the building. While teachers and students are calling into 911 and reporting shots being fired, dispatchers tell them to wait inside, that help is on the way. 911, what's your emergency? There's a shooting going on at Columbine High School. Okay, we've got people over there. Everybody needs to stay inside. Goodbye. Dozens of students are being rescued by the SWAT teams from their hiding places in the school. The sheriff's report went to great lengths to underscore the communications problems they were having at the scene and the confusion generated by scores of calls coming into 911 with conflicting information. Still, the report concedes that while they were getting information about where the wounded were in the school, that information was not being relayed to the SWAT teams operating inside. At 2.38, a SWAT team reached student Patrick Ireland, who they saw trying to crawl out a window. By 2.42, SWAT teams locate teacher Dave Sanders, who is dying. Because the medics are at the opposite end of the building, they don't reach him for some time. When they do, they determine he's dead. Today, a Sanders family lawyer responded. That delay cost Mr. Sanders his life. Our expert will tell you, our medical expert will tell you, that even more than three hours after Mr. Sanders was shot, his wounds were eminently treatable and survivable. At 3.30, SWAT teams enter the library. Ten students and the two gunmen are all dead. Parents of a student who survived the shooting were outraged that the police took so long and sent so few officers into the building. You have emotionally traumatized children in our community. Doesn't anybody care about them? They sat in the school for three hours writing goodbyes to their parents. Nobody was saving them. They saved themselves. And the Browns complained that a year before the Columbine shootings, they say they supplied police with two dozen pages from Eric Harris's website detailing threats to kill students and set off bombs. 13 months, they did not respond to death threats and three felony complaints against Eric Harris. That's why Columbine happened. According to the sheriff's report, investigators didn't even tell Eric Harris's own parents about the alleged death threats he made, and a prosecutor who reviewed the case told the sheriff that there was not enough evidence to bring a criminal charge. In Denver for Nightline, I'm John Miller.
Catherine Massey Book Club, Context of White Supremacy, Gus T. Renegade, in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, July 6, 2023. So I have been told our 10th study session on Dave Cullens' Columbine penultimate installment. We will wrap it all up next week. Think of your concluding thoughts. Incidentally, the song we are hearing that is L7's shit list. Important because we've heard a number of songs from Romstein and others from Eric Harris's playlist. This is from Dylan's playlist. Important because this song is on the Natural Born Killers soundtrack. NBK. If I had been listening to these songs, this is what I'm riding around listening to every day, wake up listening to all day long. I would probably be on the verge of a mental breakdown or gotta go kill somebody or something. I mean, wow. Anyway, quickly, segments that we heard beginning, uh, that was from the Lisa with a Z show in December of 1999. They were discussing the uh, Times Magazine article on the partial release or screening, partial screening of the basement tapes. That'll be explained as we move forward. Uh, You heard the Browns, they were in both segments, and they were saying vociferously, Judy Brown, do not make copies, do not release them. It will just invite copycats. Keep that in mind as we move forward. The next segment was from May 2000. They were talking about the official uh, Jefferson County Sheriff's Office report on their response. You heard the Browns again talking about their failed response at all levels. Now, before we get to the book, we're going to hear, we're going to fast forward all the way to 2006. So this is seven years after the murder, and it's six years from the very first report that we heard where Judy Brown said, do not release these tapes. Let's hear what they had to say about those tapes in 2006. 1,000 documents regarding the Columbine killings may soon be released. And the so-called basement tapes, however, will not. Coming up, we will talk to uh, one of the parents of the Columbine victims who actually want these tapes to come out. And before you say, look, I, you know, why reopen the wounds? And I just heard some of the uh, phone conversations and, and Shaw had those emails. Understandable, depending on where you're coming from. Uh, but in, it's important to hear from the perspective of a parent. I think it may uh, at least enlighten us all as to what could and how to keep this from happening again. Uh, so we'll talk about that. All uh, It's reality. Uh, apparently, these killings... Uh, could have been prevented. Some say the parents of the Columbine shooters, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, have a chance to appeal this decision that was made. The documents include diaries, yearbook messages, uh, day planners, and papers the two actually wrote for school. The Denver Post sued for the release of that information, as you know. And last year, a judge said that the Jefferson County Sheriff should make the decision. Well, he did. Sheriff Ted Mink decided to release these papers, but not the so-called basement tapes that Harrison Klebold made, saying that they actually will explain how to execute a Columbine-like massacre. Here's some of that. They're reaching out to their audience. They're actually talking in the video camera, not just two kids messing around, but they're actually engaging younger people in this audience, encouraging through their tone and through their very convincing rhetoric. 
this is the right thing to do because we, uh, society is screwed up and, and we want to cleanse it and this is how you do it. Sheriff Mink there, uh, but not everyone agrees. Some of the parents of the 12 teenagers killed that day think that those tapes could actually help prevent future killings and that the sheriff's department is only trying to protect itself. Well, joining me this morning is Randy and Judy Brown, of course. Uh, their son, Brooks, was, if I'm not mistaken, friends with uh, Eric and Dylan at one time mm -hmm. and indeed was. He felt threatened, and you guys at the time felt that, uh, that Brooke actually... Uh, and what he had, the information he had to share, could have maybe prevented the Columbine. Well, we went to the police with it in 97 and 98, and the police failed to act. Um, the, the importance of these documents, and you have to understand the history with Jefferson County. On April 21st, they held a secret meeting where 20 high-ranking officials got together and decided to conceal information from the families, these families of these murdered children and the Sanders family. Um, and we have been fighting that for seven years trying to get the truth out we just want the truth out it isn't the the fact that these videos will be shown and that they're great for tv and people like to watch them it mm -hmm. isn't that at all mm -hmm. we want the truth out and the jefferson county sheriff's department is concealing the truth ted mink is doing nothing but continuing the lies that have been going on for seven well, years. well that was one of my questions uh... the the change of command between sheriff stone and sheriff mink Hold your thought for one moment, because on the phone with us is Brian Rohrbaugh, whose son Daniel uh, was killed in the Columbine tragedy. Uh, Brian, thank you very much for coming on with us this morning. Good morning, Steve. Obviously, you feel, as do the Browns, that this uh, should be released. Uh, you're not buying the argument that this might inspire, perhaps, some other kids to uh, act on what they may see on a tape? Well, you know, you can't eliminate that as a possibility, but I think we have to look at the reality. Sheriff Mink says this would cause Columbine-type attacks, so I want to know which video caused Columbine and what has he done to get it off the market. For that matter, which videos have caused all the school shootings both before and since Columbine? It's just nonsensical to say that we shouldn't have access to this. This shows what went on inside their homes. It shows what their families knew. It talks about interaction with these two murderers and the police department and the district attorney. There's a lot of things in here Jefferson County doesn't want you to know because it offends their vanity. But the reality is, if we treat a crime like this by hiding the information, then absolutely nothing gets learned. The guests you just had on point out that when people are murdered, sometimes good can come from it. But with Columbine, you haven't seen anything good come out of it that's helped prevent the loss of life in other schools because this sheriff's department, now under Ted Mink's command, is refusing to let you have access to it. How, uh, how do the other families feel? Well, I haven't talked to everyone, but of the families I've talked to, everyone either wants it released you know, I talked to one family that said they really didn't have an opinion. They haven't seen the videos. It's also important to note, I have seen these videos over and over and over again, and I guarantee you I've studied them more closely than Ted Mink has. And I know there are some things disturbing in them, but what he's portraying them as is a flat lie. That's not what they are. This is not some compelling thing. It, was, it, was it Sheriff Stone and the Browns back in on the conversation now? Was it Sheriff Stone that actually made a deal with Time Magazine to release those, was it three hours in the, in, originally? Go ahead. 
It, it was Sheriff Stone. He did release them to Tim Rose from time. And he, so why not release them He allowed them to see them. Tim Rose wrote down every word that was in them, and he took that back, and he made uh, an article in Time magazine. Well, we've seen them, too, and other we've members of the public have seen them, and the news media has seen them. There's nothing awful in these. That isn't the point. The sheriff, again, is, is not, he does not care about the Harrises and the Klebolds, and he doesn't care about these victims' families. He is protecting Jefferson County, and that's all he's doing. He's sold his soul to the corruption of Jefferson County. It's quite an indictment, and I know you wouldn't say that unless you felt very deeply about this. Let's hear what some of our viewers think, at least part of our Fox Focus group now. Joanna Canals is a Peaberry Coffee, and it's always a difficult wound to uh, to reopen or to look at. The scar will always be there. Joanna? Right. Um, we're talking to Alex today. She's 19 years old, so she was actually in middle school when all of this happened, and I thought it would be good to get a perspective from a young person. We've been talking about these basement tapes. You read a little bit about them. Do you think they should be released? I honestly don't think it's, it would prevent or make it happen, a tragedy like that again. But I do think that releasing tapes like that and showing the step-by-step -step is just going to give other kids ideas where things like this happen all the time. And I think that kids aren't... Do you think parents are more aware now after Columbine happened? You don't need to release this kind of information? I think parents are more aware. I think teachers are more aware. And I think other classmates are more aware. Where there are other signs that you can pay attention to that are very clear. If it shows that a kid's going to do something like this. But we don't need to see that. Releasing details on step-by-step -step things is it's unnecessary, I think, in preventing something like that from happening. All right. Thanks, Alex. We always like to get the uh, young perspective, and she's got to get to work, so we'll let you go. Steve, back to you in the studio. Thank you very much. Brian, you just heard that. A comment. Well, my thought on it is, first, she hasn't seen the videos, but they don't show a step-by-step -step plan on the attack. They do show their weapons. They show what's in their homes and all. The video that you're showing of them shooting their guns in the mountains is far more graphic than anything you see in these basement tapes. But it's a mischaracterization of this video to say it's a step-by-step -step training video. That's just flat-out a lie. That's so, not what they contain. To the Browns, uh, and we do have to wrap up, I apologize uh, for the limited time that we have. Brooks and what uh, his relationship were with these two... Uh, I don't know what to call them. I, I just get frustrated murderers every time. Uh, the murderers, yes. I mean, would he have been able to, perhaps, if the authorities would have listened to you, would he have been able, do you think, to thwart what happened? No, there's no doubt Absolutely. that Columbine would have been prevented. Columbine would not have happened if what the were those sheriff signs? had done their job. What, what were, what those were signs? the signs? He was saying it on the Internet. That he was going to kill Brooks and wanted to blow up, uh, he was building pipe bombs, detonating pipe bombs, wanted to kill people. But was, so how, how much bravado is that from some teenager? What would lend anybody to believe that would actually He happen? was already in the diversion program. You have to remember they'd already broken into a van. They had vandalized the school. They had broken into the school's computer and taken everybody's school locker combination. They had broken into lockers. There was a pattern happening here, and Jefferson County knew about the pattern. They were in the diversion program. They had that they were building pipe Bombs. These kids were building And all pipe the documents, bombs. if they all were released at the snap of a finger, would reveal this. Well, unlike this young, this, un run. this uninformed young lady that thinks that it doesn't matter, this is the whole point. It the more you know, the more people know.
the more you can prevent another accident. And if accident parents like see this video, they will search their children's rooms. Let me tell you, no one will walk away from that video without looking in their kids' rooms. You will not believe it. But there are other lessons to be learned, too, and they're all in this information they won't release. Brian, final word from you, sir. Well, I, I agree with what the Browns just said. For the sake of children, it's too late for my son. But for the sake of other people's children, we have to learn everything we can, and then we have to start acting to stop the school violence. There are uh, people that will literally uh, hear about this story coming up and will, will turn the television off because it's too painful or they feel we're too obsessed with it. But this is, uh, this is reality, and it's a news story, and we thought we'd talk about, uh, about it with you all. And thank you very much, all thank of you, you for coming Steve. on today. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. All right. 49. Ready to be done. Mr. Dean knew the date his mission would wrap, May 18, 2002. He had one objective after the massacre, to shepherd nearly 2,000 kids to emotional high ground. The last class of freshmen would graduate that May. Frank had no idea what he might do afterward. He could not plan yet. His hands were full. He had three school years to get through. He had seriously underestimated the turmoil of the first, Nobody had foreseen that torrent of aftershocks. He would not make that mistake again. The second summer offered a respite, just like the first, but when the doors reopened in August 2000, the faculty braced for the next onslaught. It never came. There was never a year like that first one, never anything close. The second school year got off on a high note. An addition had been constructed over the summer with a new library. The old one was demolished, converting the commons into a two-story atrium. Most of the parents' group attended the opening. Sue Patron glowed. For the past sixteen months, she had felt physically weak every time she'd stepped inside the school. Like you're underwater and can't breathe, she'd said. All that was lifted away. She had been fighting for more than a year, and she was done. Nearly all the parents were. Sue's ex-husband was the exception. Brian Warbaugh and Frank DeAngelis dominated the ceremony, standing thirty feet apart in the cafeteria with a cluster of reporters around each, talking about each other. Mr. D was diplomatic and tried to avoid the feud altogether. But reporters kept shuttling over from Warbaugh with fresh accusations for Mr. D to respond to. Brian was brutal and direct. The school caused these murders, he said. The administration must pay. Mr. D. developed a heart condition. It appeared the first autumn after the shootings. Stress, the doctors said. No kidding. Frank was riddled with symptoms of PTSD, numbness, anxiety attacks, inability to concentrate, and reclusiveness. Therapy helped him sort them out. Immediately after the murders, he had trouble making eye contact. It got worse. What was that about? Guilt, he discovered. I had never heard of survivor guilt. I felt guilty that Dave and the kids died, and I lived. His wife wanted to help. It was eating him up, but he couldn't express it to her. He was just like his students. Don't shut your parents out, he begged them. He could cry in front of them, but his wife, she didn't understand, and he didn't particularly want her to. He just wanted solace at home. The years after the tragedy were tumultuous. He got to Columbine at 6 a.m., left at 8 or 9 in the evening. 
Weekends, he came in for shorter stints, quiet time to catch up. At any given time, he had a dozen kids on suicide watch. Breakdowns were a daily occurrence among the students and the staff. He got tremendous satisfaction out of helping the kids, but it was a terrible drain. He had a couple of hours every night to forget it all. I needed that time to regenerate, he said. The last thing I wanted to do when I got home was talk about it. His wife implored him to open up. His son and daughter were concerned. His parents and siblings seemed to call constantly. Are you eating? Should you be driving? I think I know when to eat, he would say. Everyone had to know how he was feeling. How are you doing? How are you doing? Enough, he would say. Please stop. Mr. D struggled with some of the staff, too. A therapist complained that she spent years in his school after the tragedy, and he never learned her name. He could name all 2,000 students. He had a strong team of administrators who were great at heading off problems, but some of them needed support themselves. One was brilliant, but chatty. She had to talk out all her pain. Frank wouldn't do it. He confessed to his staff that he knew he wasn't there for them. He just didn't have the juice. He had so much in him and it was all going to the kids. It got the kids through. Frank sought out avenues for relaxation. He joined a Sunday night bowling league with his wife. Strangers would approach every frame. How are you doing? How are the students? Once again, it was Columbine, he said. Out to dinner? Same thing. People would come right up to the booth. It got to the point where it didn't want to do anything. I just wanted to stay home. Home was just as bad. I would go down to my basement to avoid my wife and kids, he said. His golden retriever followed. That was nice. His family resented him. They could not understand why I was acting that way, he said. He felt awful, too. I wasn't the person I wanted to be. He started counseling immediately after the attack, and he credits it with saving him. If he could do one thing over, it would be to include his family in the therapy. They had no idea what PTSD was, he said. If they had just understood what I was going through, it would have been all right. His marriage didn't make it. Early in 2002, he and his wife agreed to divorce. He said Columbine had not been the sole reason, but it was a big part. As he prepared to move out, Frank came upon 4,000 letters he'd received in 1999. Most were supportive, some angry. A few threatened his life. He had tried to read 25 a day. That proved traumatic. Now he was ready to face them. He read through a big stack, and one name caught him off guard. Diane Meyer had been his old high school sweetheart. They had broken up before graduation and lost touch for 30 years. He looked her up. Her mom was in the same house. He called Diane, and she was so understanding. They spoke several times, never in person, but long, comforting chats. She helped him through the divorce and the emotional upheaval ahead of him in May. He had one more thing he had to do. Columbine was a cathartic experience for much of the faculty. They reevaluated their lives. Many started over on new careers. By the spring of 2002, most of them had moved on. Every other administrator but Frank was gone. As May approached, Mr. D considered what had made him happiest. How did he really want to invest his remaining years? 
No compromises, he decided. He would follow his dream. He chose to remain principal at Columbine. He loved that job. Some of the families hated him. They were disgusted by his announcement. Others were pleased. His kids were ecstatic. Warbaugh was furious, but he was having success with the cops. His Hail Mary pass had broken the dam. Judge Jackson continued releasing evidence. Eventually, Jeffco was ordered to release almost everything, except the supposedly incendiary items, the killer's journals and the basement tapes. The mother load came in November 2000, 11,000 pages of police reports, including virtually every witness account. Jeffco said that was everything. It was still hiding more than half. Reporters and families kept chipping away, demanding known items. Jeffco acted comically in its attempts to suppress. It numbered all the pages and then eliminated thousands, releasing the documents with numbered gaps. One release indicated nearly 3,000 missing pages. Jeffco was forced to cough up half a dozen more releases over the next year. In November 2001, officials described a huge stack as the last batch. More than 5,000 pages more came by the end of 2002 and 10,000 in 2003. In January, February, March, June, and three separate times in October. Halfway through all that, in April 2001, District Attorney Dave Thomas inadvertently mentioned the smoking gun. The affidavit to search Eric's house more than a year before the massacre. Jeffco had vigorously denied its existence for two years. Judge Jackson ordered it released. The affidavit was more damning than expected. Investigator Guerra had astutely pulled together the threads of Eric's early plotting and had documented mass murder threats and the bomb production to begin realizing them. The purpose of the cover-up was out in the open, yet it continued for several more years. Finally, in June 2003, the search warrant Kate Batten had composed on the afternoon of the massacre came out. It demonstrated conclusively that Jeffco officials had been lying about the Browns all along, that they knew about the warnings from the beginning, and the missing web pages were so accessible they'd found them in the first minutes of the attack. Anger and contempt kept rising. A federal judge finally had enough. He ruled that Jeffco could not be trusted even to warehouse valuable evidence. He ordered the county to hand over key materials, such as the basement tapes, to be secured in the federal courthouse in Denver. Agent Fusillet beat Mr. D to retirement. Six months after the massacre, the investigation was largely complete. Fusillet continued studying the killers, but he transitioned back to his role as head of domestic terrorism for the Colorado-Wyoming region. Few Americans had heard of Osama bin Laden, but a life-sized wanted poster of him greeted visitors to the FBI branch office. Fusillet saw enemy number one's picture every morning as he got off the elevator on the 18th floor. He's a dangerous man, Fusillet told the visitor. The Bureau was determined to stop him. Fusillet also resumed training hostage negotiators and went back on call for serious incidents. Two years later, he concluded one of the most notorious prison breaks in recent history. The Texas 7 had escaped the maximum security facility and embarked on a crime spree. The ringleader was serving 18 life sentences, 
who had nothing left to lose. On Christmas Eve 2000, they stole a cache of guns from a sporting goods store and ambushed a police officer. They shot him 11 times and ran him over on the way out to be sure he was dead. He was. A reward was posted, $500,000. The gang kept moving. On January 20, 2001, they were spotted in a trailer park near Colorado Springs. A SWAT team captured four of them, and a fifth killed himself to avoid recapture. The two holdouts barricaded themselves in a Holiday Inn. It took Agent Fusilier's team five hours to talk them out. They were fixated on corruption in the penal system, so Fusilier arranged a live interview on a local TV station at 2.30 a.m. A cameraman came inside the room so the holdouts could see they were actually broadcast live. Both convicts then surrendered and were sentenced to death. All six survivors await lethal injection in Texas. The stress wore Fusilier down. He would have 20 years at the Bureau that October and be eligible for his pension. He announced his retirement for that date. He would be 54. On September 11, 2001, the country was attacked. Bin Laden was behind it. Fusilier postponed his retirement and spent most of the next 11 months on the case. By the summer of 2002, the United States had taken over Afghanistan. Bin Laden had fled into hiding, and the urgency had abated. Fusilier's son, Brian, graduated from Columbine High that May, the last class Mr. D had been waiting for. Brian was leaving for college in July. Dwayne scheduled his retirement for the week afterward, so Brian wouldn't see his dad lazing about, jobless. I could see a change the next day, Brian told his dad when he returned home for a visit. You had mellowed out more than I had ever seen. Fusilier missed the work, though. Within months, he was consulting for the State Department. It sent him to conduct anti-terrorism training in third-world countries. He spent a quarter of the year in sketchy sections of Pakistan, Tanzania, Malaysia, Macedonia, anywhere terrorists were active. Mimi worried. Dwayne didn't think about it much, and Brian didn't hear the tension return to his voice. Fear wasn't the problem at the FBI. It was the responsibility. It was getting harder going to work knowing someone's life might depend on me not making any mistakes that day, he said. Shortly before Brian left Columbine, Michael Moore's Bowling for Columbine drew raves at Cannes. It became the top-grossing documentary in U.S. history. It wasn't really much about Columbine, and the title featured a minor myth that Eric and Dylan went bowling on April 20th. But it included a dramatic scene where Moore and a victim went to Kmart and asked to return the bullets still inside the guy. The stunt and or publicity around it shamed Kmart into discontinuing ammunition sales nationwide. Marilyn Manson was interviewed in the film. Moore asked Manson what he would say to the killers if he had a chance to talk to them. I wouldn't say a single word to them, he said. I would listen to what they have to say, and that's what no one did. That was the story the media had told. The connection to KMFDM, the nihilistic band Eric did idolize and quote frequently, was ignored by the major media. Bands got word, however, and the band issued a statement of deep remorse. 
We are sick and appalled, as is the rest of the nation, by what took place in Colorado. None of us condone any Nazi beliefs whatsoever. The killer's parents remained silent. They never spoke to the press. Pastor Don Markshausen stayed close to Tom and Sue Klebold. He was a great comfort. Sue went back to training disabled students at the community college. That helped her cope. It's amazing how long it took me to get up and say my name at a meeting, to say, I'm Dylan Klebold's mother, she said later. Dylan could have killed any number of the kids of people that I work with. Shopping could be intimidating. Anticipating that moment of recognition as a salesperson examined her credit card. It was a distinctive name. Sometimes they noticed. Boy, you're a survivor, one clerk said. Tom worked from home, so he had a choice about when to go out. He stayed in all the time. Pastor Don worried about him. Reverend Markshausen paid for that compassion. Much of his parish loved him for it. Others were outraged. The church council split. That was untenable. A year after the massacre, he was forced out. Markshausen had been one of the most revered ministers in the Denver area, but now he could not find a job. After a bout of unemployment, he left the state to head up a small parish. He missed Colorado and eventually moved back. He got a job as a chaplain at a county jail. His primary function was to advise inmates when loved ones had died. He was born for the job, ministering to the desperate. He empathized with each one, and it sucked the life out of him. The lawsuits sputtered on for years. They got messier. A rash of new defendants was added, including school officials, the killer's parents, the manufacturer of Luvox, and anyone who had come in contact with the guns. The suits were consolidated in federal court. Judge Lewis Babcock accepted the county's two major arguments, that it was not responsible for stopping the killers in advance, and that cops should not be punished for decisions under fire. Babcock said the authorities should have headed off the massacre months earlier, but were not legally bound. In November 2001, he dismissed most of the charges against the sheriff and the school. The families appealed, and the county settled the next year, $15,000 each, a fraction of their legal fees. The discovery process never brought much to light. It didn't need to. The Warbaugh's initial offensive had set the legal process in motion, and it continued under its own power. Judge Babcock refused to dismiss the Sanders case. He balked at the contention that Dave's rescue involved split-second decisions. They had time in the third hour, Babcock boomed. The cops sent hundreds of people to rescue. Their attorney responded. They'd had to allocate resources. More than 750 cops had been on the scene, the judge reminded him. It's not as though they were a little shorthanded out there that day, he said. In August 2002, Jeffco paid Angela Sanders $1.5 million. It admitted to no wrongdoing. The last Jeffco case to close was Patrick Ireland's. He got $117,500. After years of wrangling, most of the fringe cases were dismissed. Luvox was pulled from the market. That left the killer's families. They wanted to settle. They didn't have a lot of money, 
but they had insurance. It turned out their homeowner's policies covered murder by their children. About $1.6 million was divided between 31 families. Most of it came from the Klebold's policy. Similar agreements were reached with Mark Maines, Philip Duran, and Robin Anderson for an estimated total of approximately $1.3 million. Five families rebuffed the Harrises and Klebolds. No buyout without information. It wasn't really about the money for the Rohrbos and four others. They were battling for information, and they proved it. But they were caught in a stalemate. The killer's parents would talk if the victims dropped the lawsuits. The victims would drop the lawsuits if the parents spoke. For two more years, it continued. Then the judge brokered a deal. The holdouts would dismiss their suits if the killer's parents answered all their questions, privately, but under oath. It was a bitter compromise. The holdouts wanted answers for the public as well as themselves. They settled for themselves. In July 2003, the four parents were deposed for several days. Media came to photograph them. They had remained so private that few reporters even knew what they looked like. Two weeks after the depositions, an agreement was announced. It appeared to be over. But Don Anna called for the depositions to be made public, understanding the warning signs could prevent the next Columbine. A chorus gathered behind her. A magistrate ruled that the transcripts would be destroyed per the agreement. That set off a public outcry and a wave of open records requests. Judge Babcock agreed to consider arguments. It had taken four years to reach this point. They were only halfway there. In April 2007, Judge Babcock finally ruled. There is a legitimate public interest in these materials so that similar tragedies may hopefully be prevented, he wrote. I conclude, however that the balance of interests still strikes in favor of maintaining strict confidentiality. He settled on a compromise. The transcripts would be sealed at the National Archives for 20 years. The truth would come out in 2027, 28 years after the massacre. Though he was retired, Fuselet hoped to see the depositions too, Optimally, he would like to question the parents himself. He knew where the boys ended, psychologically. But their origins were a mystery, particularly Eric's. Only two people had an 18-year perspective on his path to psychopathy. When did Eric start exhibiting the early hallmarks, and how were they visible? Wayne had adopted a stern parenting style. How had that worked? Eric wrote little about interaction with his mother, what had Kathy's approach been? Were there any successes, anything that could help the next parent? Fuselet understood their refusal to talk. I have the utmost sympathy for the Harris and Klebold parents, he said. They have been vilified without information. No one has sufficient objective information to draw any conclusions. Fuselet said he had raised two sons, and either one could have emerged with traits beyond his comprehension. Eric documented his parents' frustration with his behavior, as well as their attempts to force him to conform. Their tactics might have been all wrong for a budding young psychopath, but how do parents even know what that is? I believe they have been unjustifiably criticized for what their sons did, Fuselet said. 
they are probably asking themselves the same questions that we in the profession are asking. Patrick Ireland left home for Colorado State in fall 2000. He did fine. He really took to campus life, and he was surprised by how much he enjoyed business school. Letting go of architecture turned out to be easy. He had been forced into something he liked more. He still fought memory battles, struggled a bit to find words, and would probably remain on anti-seizure medication for life. He met a girl his first night, Casey Lancaster. She was clever, attractive, and a little shy. They clicked immediately and became close friends. In May 2004, he graduated magna cum laude. Armed with a B.S. in business administration, he accepted a job as a financial planner at Northwestern Mutual Financial Network. He loved it. One finger troubled him a little. His right pinky jutted out away from the others, which caused a minor issue when he shook hands. It could poke the other person in the palm a little, just enough to signal that something was off. You could catch him glancing down there nervously, if you knew what to look for. It was not the first impression he wanted to make. But he had such a commanding presence once he spoke. Clients trusted him. His bosses were happy. He was becoming a star. Patrick had retired the wheelchair and the crutch in high school. The foot brace remained. His right leg lagged behind a little. Noticeable, but not debilitating. Running was out of the question. But water skis were not. Balance, strength, and agility were all hurdles Patrick could overcome. But he would never regain the dexterity in his right foot to grip the ski. So he worked with an engineering friend to build a custom boot he could slip on as he tried to rise up on the water. They spent months working on prototypes and experimenting with them at the lake. John went with them for encouragement. Every time, the boat dragged Patrick uselessly behind. They tried stripping the shell off a rollerblade and adhering it to the ski. Nope. They refined it and returned to the lake. Useless. Patrick tried over and over. He had made about ten runs that evening, and it was getting late. John was sure Patrick was exhausted and thought it was time to break. No, I can do this, Patrick said. John agreed. He sat in the passenger seat facing backward. The driver throttled the engine, and John watched his boy rise up onto the surface of the lake. Wow. Patrick felt the spray pelt his face. The sun danced on the waves. The tow rope jerked his arms. He dug in for a turn. A sheet of water shot up and sliced into his calf. It hurt just a little. Ah, the pain of competition. It felt great. Everyone expected copycats. The country braced for a new level of horror. School shooting deaths actually dropped 25% over the next three years. But Eric and Dylan gave young eyes a fresh approach. Terrorist tactics for personal aggrandizement. In 2001, a pair of ninth graders at a Fort Collins, Colorado middle school procured a similar arsenal. Tech-9, shotgun, rifles, and propane bombs. They planned to reverse Eric's chronology, seal off exits, mow down students, and save the bombs for stragglers. They would finish by taking ten hostages, holding them in the counseling office for fun, then killing the kids and themselves. But they leaked. 
Kids nearly always leak. The bigger the plot, the wider the leakage. The Fort Collins pair went recruiting for gunmen to cover all the exits. One of the plotters told at least seven people that he planned to redo Columbine. He bragged to four girls that they would be the first to die. They went straight to the police. Teen peers were different after 1999. Jokes scared the crap out of kids. Two more grandiose plots in Malcolm, Nebraska and Oakland, New Jersey were foiled in the first five years. School administrators around the country responded with zero tolerance, meaning every idle threat was treated like a cocked gun. That drove everyone crazy. Nearly all supposed killers turned out to be kids blowing off steam. It wasn't working for anyone. A pair of government how-to guides helped. The FBI and the Secret Service each published reports in the first three years, guiding faculty to identify serious threats. The central recommendations contradicted prevailing post-Columbine behavior. They said identifying outcasts as threats is not healthy. It demonizes innocent kids who are already struggling. It is also unproductive. Oddballs are not the problem. They do not fit the profile. There is no profile. All the recent school shooters shared exactly one trait, 100% male. Since the study, a few have been female. Aside from personal experience, no other characteristic hit 50%, not even close. There is no accurate or useful profile of attackers, the Secret Service said. Attackers came from all ethnic, economic, and social classes. The bulk came from solid two-parent homes. Most had no criminal record or history of violence. The two biggest myths were that shooters were loners and that they snapped. A staggering 93% planned their attack in advance. The path toward violence is an evolutionary one, with signposts along the way, the FBI report said. Cultural influences also appeared weak. Only a quarter were interested in violent movies, half that number in video games, probably below average for teen boys. Most perps shared a crucial experience. Ninety-eight percent had suffered a loss or failure they perceived as serious. Anything from getting fired to blowing a test or getting dumped. Of course, everyone suffers loss and failure, but for these kids, the trauma seemed to set anger in motion. This was certainly true in Columbine. Dylan viewed his entire life as failure, and Eric's arrest accelerated his anger. So what should adults look for? First and foremost, advanced confessions. 81% of shooters had confided their intentions. More than half told at least two people. Most threats are idle, though. The key is specificity. Vague, implied, and implausible threats are low risk. The danger skyrockets when threats are direct and specific. Identify a motive and indicate work performed to carry it out. Melodramatic outbursts do not increase the risk. A subtler form of leakage is preoccupation with death, destruction, and violence. A graphic mutilation story might be an early warning sign or a vivid imagination. Add malice, brutality, and an unrepentant hero, and concern should rise. Don't overreact to a single story or drawing, the FBI warned. Normal teen boys enjoy violence and are fascinated with the macabre. 
Writings and drawings on these themes can be a reflection of a harmless but rich and creative fantasy life, the report said. The key was repetition leading to obsession. The Bureau described a boy who'd worked guns and violence into every assignment. In home ec class, he'd baked a cake in the shape of a gun. The FBI compiled a specific list of warning signs, including symptoms of both psychopathy and depression. Manipulation, intolerance, superiority, narcissism, alienation, rigidity, lethargy, dehumanization of others, and externalizing blame. It was a daunting list. That's a small excerpt. Few teachers were going to master it. The FBI recommended against trying. It suggested one person per school be trained intensely for all faculty and administrators to turn to. The FBI added one final caution. A kid matching most of its warning signs was more likely to be suffering from depression or mental illness than planning an attack. Most kids matching the criteria needed help, not incarceration. Columbine also changed police response to attacks. No more perimeters. A national task force was organized to develop a new plan. In 2003, it released the Active Shooter Protocol. The gist was simple. If the shooter seems active, storm the building. Move toward the sound of gunfire. Disregard even victims. There is one objective. Neutralize the shooters. Stop them or kill them. The concept had been around for years, but had been rejected. Pre-Columbine, cops had been exhorted to proceed cautiously, secure the perimeter, get the gunman talking, wait for the SWAT team. The key to the new protocol was active. Most shootings, the vast majority, were labeled passive. The gunman was alive, but not firing. Those cases reverted to the old protocol. Success depended on accurately determining the threat in the first moments. Officers face a second decision point when they reach the shooters. If the killer is holed up in a classroom, holding kids but not firing, responders may need to stop there and use traditional hostage techniques. Storming the classroom could provoke the gunman, but if the shooter is firing, even just periodically, move in. The active shooter protocol gained quick and widespread acceptance. In a series of shootings over the next decade, including the worst disaster at Virginia Tech, cops or guards rushed in, stopped shooters, and saved lives. Sue Patron asked for and received the two sidewalk blocks her son Danny died on. They were jackhammered out of the ground and installed in her backyard, in the shadow of a fragrant spruce tree. Around the slab, she created a rock garden, with two big wooden tubs overflowing with petunias. She had a sturdy oak truss constructed over the slab, and a porch swing suspended from the crossbeam. She and Rich and their shaggy little dog can nestle comfortably into the generous swing. Linda Sanders kept the Advil tablet found near Dave's body. He had trouble with knee swelling, so he always carried one in his pocket. Just one. She took his bloody clothes, a swath of carpet from under his head, a little fragment of tooth that chipped off when he fell, and his glasses. She would never let those glasses go. She snapped them into an eyeglass case and placed them on the nightstand by her bed. 
She intends to leave them that way forever. The lawsuit on behalf of Dave Sanders outlived all the others, but his widow chose not to take part. She was not angry at the police or the school or the parents. She was angry at her situation. She was lonely. 50. The Basement Tapes Eric wanted to be remembered. He spent a year on The Book of God, but five weeks before Judgment Day, he decided that wasn't good enough. He wanted a starring role on camera, so on March 15th, he and Dylan began The Basement Tapes. It would be a tight shooting schedule, with no time for editing or post-production. They filmed with a Sony 8mm camcorder, checked out from the Columbine High video lab. The first installment was a basic talk show setup, a stationary camera in the family room in Eric's basement, outside his bedroom. He continued making camera adjustments after he was rolling, perhaps as a sneaky way to ensure his audience would be clear on the director. The video project was entirely about his audience. Ultimately, the attack was, too. Eric joined Dylan on set. They kicked back in plush velvet recliners, bantering about the big events. Eric had a bottle of Jack Daniels in one hand, and Arlene laid across his lap. He took a swig and tried not to grimace. He hated the stuff. Dylan munched on a toothpick and took little sips of Jack as well. They ranted for more than an hour. Dylan was wild and animated and angry obsessively hurling his fingers through his long, ratty hair. Eric was mostly calm and controlled. They spoke with one voice, Eric's. Eric introduced most ideas. Dylan riffed along. They insulted the usual inferiors, blacks, Latinos, gays, and women. Yes, moms, stay home, Eric said. Fucking make me dinner, bitch! Sometimes Eric got kind of loud. That made Dylan nervous. It was after 1 a.m., and Eric's parents were upstairs, snoozing away. Careful, Dylan warned. They rattled off a list of kids who'd pissed them off. Eric had been dragged across the country. The scrawny little white guy, constantly starting over, always at the bottom of the food chain. People kept making fun of him. My face, my hair, my shirts... He enumerated every girl who had refused his advances. Dylan got fired up just listening. He faced the camera and addressed his tormentors. If you could see all the anger I've stored over the past four fucking years, he said. He described the sophomore who didn't deserve the jaw evolution gave him. Look for his jaw, Dylan said. It won't be on his body. Eric named one guy he planned to shoot in the balls, another in the face. I imagine I will be shot in the head by a fucking cop, he said. No one they named would be killed. It went back so much further than high school. From pre-kindergarten at Foothills Daycare Center, Dylan could remember them. All the stuck-up toddlers sneering at him. Being shy didn't help, he said. At home it was just as bad, except for his parents. His whole extended family looked down on him, treated him like the runt of the litter. His brother was always ripping on him. Byron's friends, too. You made me what I am, Dylan said. You added to the rage. More rage, more rage, Eric demanded. He motioned with his arms. Keep building it. Dylan hurled another Ericism. I've narrowed it down. It's humans I hate. 
Eric raised Arlene and aimed her at the camera. You guys will all die, and it will be fucking soon, he said. You all need to die. We need to die, too. The boys made it clear, repeatedly, that they planned to die in battle. Their legacy would live. We're going to kickstart a revolution, Eric said. I declared war on the human race, and war is what it is. He apologized to his mom. I really am sorry about this, but war's war, he told her. My mother, she's so thoughtful. She helps out in so many ways. She brought him candy when he was sad, and sometimes Slim Jims. He said his dad was great, too. Eric grew quiet. He said his parents had probably noticed him withdrawing. That was intentional. He was doing it to help them. I don't want to spend any more time with them, he said. I wish they were out of town so I didn't have to look at them and bond more. Dylan was less generous. I'm sorry I have so much rage, but you put it in me, he said. He got around to thanking them for self-awareness and self-reliance. I appreciate that, he said. The boys insisted their parents were not to blame. They gave me my fucking life, Dylan said. It's up to me what I do with it. Dylan bemoaned the guilt they would feel, but then ridiculed it. He pitched his voice to mimic his mom. If only we could have reached them sooner or found this tape. Eric loved that. If only we could have asked the right questions, he added. Oh, they were wily, the boys agreed. Parents were easy to fool. Teachers, cops, bosses, judges, shrinks, diversion officers, and anyone in authority were pathetic. I could convince them that I'm going to climb Mount Everest, Eric said, or that I have a twin brother growing out of my back. I can make you believe anything. Eventually, they got tired of the talk show and moved on to a tour of their arsenal. Eric outdid Dylan with the apologies. To the untrained eye, he seemed sincere. The psychologists on the case found Eric less convincing. They saw a psychopath. Classic. He even pulled the stunt of self-diagnosing to dismiss it. I wish I was a fucking sociopath so I didn't have any remorse, Eric said. But I do. Watching that made Dr. Fusilier angry. Remorse meant a deep desire to correct a mistake. Eric hadn't done it yet. He excused his actions several times on the tapes. Fusilier was tough to rattle, but that got to him. Those are the most worthless apologies I've ever heard in my life, he said. It got more ludicrous later when Eric willed some of his stuff to two buddies. If you guys live. If you live? Fusilier repeated. They are going to go in there and quite possibly kill their friends. If they were the least bit sorry, they would not do it. This is exactly the sort of false apology Dr. Clickley identified in 1941. He described bony emotional outbursts and dazzling simulations of love for friends, relatives, and their own children shortly before devastating them. Psychopaths mimic remorse so convincingly that victims often believe their apologies even from a state of ruin. Consider Eric Harris. Months after his massacre, a group of experienced journalists from the top papers in the country watched him perform on the basement tapes. Most reported Eric apologizing and showing remorse. They marveled at his repentance. The boys got the camera rolling again three nights later. Same place, same setup, same time frame. They laughed about how easy it was to build all the stuff. 
Instructions for everything were right there on the Internet. Bombs, poison, napalm, and how to buy guns if you're underage. In between the logistics, they tossed in more bits of philosophy. World peace is an impossible thing. Religions are gay. Directors will be fighting over this story, Dylan gushed. They pondered whom they should trust with their material, Steven Spielberg or Quentin Tarantino. Righty. Confusing. How odd. Context of white supremacy. So that'll be audio segment one. We'll pick up the chapter did not end completely. So we'll pick up the middle of chapter 50, the basement tapes. Agent Fusilay wanted that watched the tapes dozens of times. That's what we'll pick up at for the second audio segment. Anywho. The number to dial, 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 605 313 Five one six four. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Email until justice at gmail dot com. Until justice at gmail dot com. We'll read, get commentary, all that good stuff. Um, I have to get this in since we're mid-chapter, and we'll even have a little extra snippet as we uh, proceed uh, to the next segment. We'll have a little bit of a new segment where some additional journalists talk about the basement tapes. And you can hear, do any of these journalists, do they talk about the remorse and sorrow and reluctance that Eric Harris displayed in the basement tapes. You heard a little bit at the beginning. Did you hear that there? And then you'll get another chance to hear. Uh, I can share the Times Magazine article. They actually saw the basement tapes. You can see, do they, you know, comment on the remorse of Eric Harris? See what you think. Um, mm, I... The big point, Dave Cullen did not see these tapes. The way he's describing it, you would think he watched this footage and is drawing all of these conclusions. That's not what happened. If you read the footnote for chapter 50, and this is one of those books that I'm not uh, as much of a fan of because the footnotes are not numbered within the text. They're at the end. They just have notes for the chapter. Uh, but he has written here. So the footnote for chapter 50, the basement tapes, it reads the first installment. Jeff go showed the basement tapes to time. As I mentioned, Rocky mountain news, and then to a small group of reporters at a single screening. I was not included and have not seen them 
My depictions came from three sources, a detailed account in the police files, news stories from the reporters who viewed them, and descriptions by Agent Fusilet and Kate Baton. That should have been at the beginning of the paragraph, in my opinion. You are being deceptive writing this as though you watched this because a lot of these statements he doesn't have quotes around them like you know such and such said this and such and such it's just it's giving the impression that he watched all of this you didn't that is a big difference from reading a transcript or talking to someone else and they are giving you their opinion you see that from everything just from this book we have different opinions about you know what do you think about who was being hugged here we talked about that before although we got that cleared up or what are the motivations for the killers or do you think the parents should have known or why did they let Brooks Brown go you can have lots of different opinions on lots of things so he's telling us about a film he hasn't seen definitive and even speaking as an authority about all of this like wow that is galling uh, to me anywho uh, let's see I'll give one note and then we'll get to folks who dialed in or one email excuse not one note one email and then we'll get to folks who dialed in email again until justice at gmail.com all right email number one let's see one of our investors he wrote in greetings gus this reading reminds me of the book club regarding Orenthal James, and I think it is just as important. Hmm. Lots of misinformation about both events. What do you think are the top five or so most important facts that people should take away? That is probably a good question, especially since we're on the home stretch of wrapping this up. Top five. We'll give folks a chance to think about that one. Top five. People asked you about Columbine, context of white supremacy. What do you think are the most important five points to take away now that we spent some time studying this case? We'll proceed and, and come back to that one. Chapter 49, page 333. A federal judge finally had enough. He ruled that Jefferson County could not be trusted even to warehouse valuable evidence. He ordered the county to hand over key materials such as the basement tapes. Seems as if federal charges were due against these enforcement officials. I agree. Not surprising that it did not happen. Number two, page 334. Fusilier also resumed training hostage negotiators. Two years later, he concluded that one of the most notorious prison breaks in recent history, uh, the Texas 7, had escaped a maximum security Christmas Eve 2000. Uh, in 2000, they stole a cache of guns from a sporting goods store and ambushed a police officer. The picture seemed like a mixed group of white and maybe non-white Hispanic, so-called. Six of the seven were taken alive. One committed suicide before capture. Four of the six were executed later. Um, number three, page 336. Lawsuits sputtered for years. They got messier. A rash of new defendants was added, including school officials, the killer's parents, the manufacturer of Luvox. Their homeowners policies covered murder by their children. The transcripts would be sealed at the National Archives for 27 years. How much did the Shoals ultimately receive? Did it mostly go to the lawyers? Keeping this type of information sealed is a common tactic by the racists, white supremacists. Who was the judge protecting? I suspect it is another part of the cover-up by enforcement officials I would agree 
that 2027 make sure we are eating lots of vegetables fruits get some exercise it's summertime drink your water get outside do some hiking swimming something yoga volleyball something uh be fit as i mean three years you know you never know right george floyd renisha mcbride you never know but do our best let's see what they had to say i had seen that date before amongst the people who researched this case they had been saying 2027 2027 can't we like oh that's what it is okay the sealed depositions 2000 there are a number of uh i guess columbine archivists and researchers they are eagerly away they're doing what i just said taking their whole food organic multivitamins drinking their water leaving those high fructose corn syrup and all the rest of it alone so that they will be here it's like hmm what did they know what did they say i mean they had to answer all their questions oh my god i would have a list of about a thousand questions for them how many pipe bombs did you find exactly when was the last time you went into his room like man give me a little man oh my god i'll just be rattling off questions that we would have been as so did you take the browns complaint seriously when they told you about the liquor and his plans he wanted to kill brooks brown did you take that seriously did you pressure the enforcement officials to get eric harris and or dylan into this program or to get him out oh my god the questions would just be rolling and rolling dylan suing them did you find a pipe bomb of Dylan Klebo? Because he wrote that in his journal. They got caught. Did you find one of his? Oh, my God. The questions would be endless. 2027. Maybe we can do a field trip. Number four. Fusilier understood their refusal to talk. I have the utmost sympathy for Harris and Klebo appearance. He said they have been vilified without information. Are you out of your foot? Fusilier remains on the white code, even though I suspect he knew a lot more about how culpable the parents were. Real talk, Fusilier should have been recused. I was going to say this for later, but I mean, this is so galling. One, they already mentioned he had a child at Columbine the day of the event. That, in my view, more than enough grounds. No, you're a little too close for this situation. You're coming in to investigate. Are you coming to check to make sure your child is safe? Both. Uh, No, let's get somebody else. Two, his other son, graduate older son, had already graduated from Columbine. But while he was there in 1997, he was able to use some of their video program, video material and what have you. What did he make with his video time? He made a parody, they say, satire, right? We're just joking, just joking, little tomfoolery. But they made a joke about blowing up the school and having a gun battle where trench coats are worn. Can't make this stuff up. They got a whole article in the Denver Post about this. But I said that would be two reasons for you to recuse yourself from all of this. (laughs) You've got one child like even that like, dang, why is everybody joking and joshing and messing around about blowing up the school with 
Anyway, but that's two reasons to recuse, and that did not happen. So I keep that kind of in my mind when he's giving his thoughts and opinions about all of this. Like, you shouldn't even be the one doing the analysis of this. Anyway, number five. Uh, they do not fit the profile. There is no profile. All the recent school shooters shared exactly one trait. 100% male. There's no accurate or useful profile of attacker. Don't overreact, the FBI warned. Normal that word again. Normal teen boys enjoy violence and are fascinated with the macabre. This seems inaccurate. It is not true. We are talking primarily about white males as the demographic, most susceptible to Columbine type behavior. I have to see details how they came up with this conclusion. Normal teen behavior, in quotes. It's been a long time since I was a teen, but the black dudes I knew were mostly into sports, music, clothes the opposite sex not violent fantasies i don't remember any of the black dudes that i knew now i mean we were all monsters and monstrosities and privileged no count black dudes yes but i don't remember any of us having like the anarchist cookbook blowing up stuff real talk i don't remember black guys like drinking and stuff like it just uh, people said like do they not card in Colorado, at least for white people, do they not card if you're under 21? You can just stroll in out of middle school and get a fifth of scotch. It's no big deal. <laughs> like Nobody bats an eye. Is that what it is? I didn't have, it was not easy for me to access alcohol until I was in college. High school? Like, are you serious? Anyway, number six. Columbine also changed police response in attacks no more perimeters a national task force was organized to develop a new plan in 2003 it was released the active shooter protocol the gist was simple if a shooter if the shooter seems active storm the building virginia tech cops guards rushed in stopped shooters and saved lives i guess not much has changed changed after all given the failure of enforcement officials to not follow the active shooter protocol at parkland the coward of broward not guilty on all counts and Uvalde absolutely unfortunately now some of these they did the shooter who was transgender in Nashville Tennessee earlier this year that shooting it was reported they did it correctly stormed the building as soon as possible went in neutralized the threat and we're all done no sitting around outside oh no I'm not gonna they a plus did it the correct way that is what Columbine what did we learn that's what you do Chapter 50, The Basement Tapes. Number 1, page 348, Chris was starting to worry. Eric and Dylan were making a lot of bombs. They had blown a bunch off, and he was hearing stories from all kinds of kids about them getting guns. Has Chris's involvement ever been fully investigated? Would there be an incentive on the part of racists? Wait a minute. Would there be an incentive on the part of the racist white supremacists to confine the perpetrators to as few as possible. I think there would be. They did prosecute two others on all of this, so I don't know. That is the number of people, you know, suspect maybe was Chris involved. I don't know. Lots of people have their suspicion. He was one of the first ones that they talked to. We can investigate more, I reckon. I'll pause there. That's about as far as we got in the text email number one let's see we'll nab the other folks who dialed in and folks 
via the phone as well. Let us see here. Uh, folks who dialed in via the phone line, uh, let's see, Lauren should be with us. Napper, other folks, star six one. Lauren, did you have commentary? Yes, sir, I do. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, good evening, and thank you for allowing me to speak. Um, I haven't thought about it for an extended period. I just started thinking about it after the question was raised in that email. Um, but if I'm answering now, my top five takeaways would be that, number one, this could have been prevented. Um, number two, the police lied, I shouldn't call them police, law enforcement lied constantly before and after April 20th. Um, uh, that would have been 1999. Um, the part from Chapter 40 where it said Eric Harris was neither normal nor insane. I think the takeaway should be white people, racist. People who practice racism are neither normal nor insane. Um, number four, I, I think we should think critically about the psychopathic racial personality. Maybe we should read for the first time, and if we've already read it, perhaps go back and read that writing by Bobby E. Wright. And number five, no matter what white people do, they will be giving much more sympathy and consideration than a non-white person in a system of racism, white supremacy. Um, as far as my comments, the first thing I have to say is from last week. It was a part um, that said, um, the undersheriff let a time reporter watch the basement tapes. He assured the families repeatedly that they would be the first to see the videos. The magazine ran an expose, an expose cover story shortly before Christmas. Stone and undersheriff John Dunaway posed in their dress blues with white gloves armed with the killer's semi-automatics. I, I thought about that last week, but I didn't get to talk about it. I think it was terrible, um, tacky. It was monumentally incorrect. But it shows exactly what these race soldiers thought about the entire situation and just how seriously they took it. Um, let me see. I had, um, it was a couple of things that kind of, this isn't in the text, but that um, interview that they did, that Cleveland did with the police, it was a couple of things in that that uh, stood out to me, and I thought, I think it's okay for me to share it during book club. Um, in that interview, it said the Klebolds indicated that they monitored everything about Dylan, and Mr. Klebold said that based on his own experience, Dylan seemed normal. I think that is important because maybe the way Dylan and Eric were was not unusual for white people. I think we should take note of that. How many people keep saying it? How many white people keep saying it? There was nothing wrong. They couldn't have known. They were normal. Um, so I think we should take note of that. Um, 
When asked about Dylan's friends, the Clebos indicated that they struck them as happy and healthy and that there was a lot of laughter between Dylan and his friends. They would watch movies and other activities. Um, this was another part where they said um, he was a happy, a healthy, happy child who grew to be very bright. I noticed the use of the word bright again. And then they said, um, the Klebos indicated that Dylan was gentle and was that way until the day he died. That seems um, like it's very inaccurate. Um, if, you know, killing all those people is gentle, what is, what's the opposite of that? I, I don't, that doesn't make sense at all. Um, Frank DeAngelis, um, the text from this week, chapter 49, ready to be done. Frank DeAngelis would go bowling or out to dinner, and people would walk up to him and want to talk about Columbine on a regular basis. And it said, it got to the point where I didn't want to do anything. I just wanted to stay home. Then he said, home was just as bad. I would go down to my basement to avoid my wife and kids, he said. His golden retriever followed. That was nice. Um, I guess I understand not wanting to talk about um, – the traumatic events, you know, the situation, the Columbine events all the time. That's understandable. Um, but the part that I found remarkable was that he avoided his wife and children, um, but he liked being with the dog. I, you know, I guess dogs don't talk, but white people seem to like dogs more than they like people. And that's what I was thinking when I read that. Um, there was another part that said few Americans had heard of Osama bin Laden, but a life-size wanted poster greeted visitors to the FBI branch office. Fuselay mm, saw enemy number one's picture every morning as he got off the elevator. He's a dangerous man, Fuselay told a visitor to the bureau. Um, a life-size poster. I had to read that like three times. A life wanted poster of Osama bin Laden. This person was six foot four. Um, so think about that, how big a life-size poster would be. Then they told the story of the Texas Seven escaping prison and embarking on a crime spree. They shoot a law enforcement officer 11 times, then run him over with the car to make sure he's dead. They put a $500,000 reward for these people. And then when they're found, you know, they barricade themselves in a Holiday Inn, and the FBI, uh, Fuselay, they talk to them for five hours to get them out of there. I don't think that's the way they dealt with Osama bin Laden, who had a $25 million reward, um, and I don't think they tried to talk him out of his compound. They just um, killed him. Um, I just... I think white people get trials, compassion, sympathy, no matter what it is that they do. You know, if they shoot 30 people at the movies or in a church, they get told to wash their head, getting in the police car, they might get a Burger King meal. Um, but these same people who have, um, you know, who treat these white criminals in such a, maybe I could call that a gentle manner, um, who are so gentle with white criminals, when is a non-white person accused of a, 
so-called crime, some sort of violation of the law, um, then these law enforcement officers, you know, they turn to judge, jury, and executioner just right on the spot. Um, I, I did notice that when they were talking about the, the basement tapes, um, he put, uh, he said, Dylan hurled another Ericism. I've narrowed it down. It's humans I hate. Human, I, I noticed that. Hugh, man, um, you know, if it's going to mean Hugh meaning color, man meaning person, I thought that was interesting. And that's been said several times in the text. And then he said, we're going to kickstart a revolution. I declared war on the Hugh man race and war is what it is. That made me think of Charles Manson wanting to start a race war. Um, and that's all I have for now. Thank you for allowing me to speak. Much obliged, Lauren. Let's see other folks who dialed in with a hand up commentary to share. I think, uh, the interview that she was talking about, it was a transcript of the police interview of the Klebols, uh, and they have a transcript of this uh, that's online. Folks can uh, share it. I think I shared it with some of the folks in the book club. If you would like to share it or if you would like to read it, drop me an email. I can share it with you as well, or I can just post it. I can do both, I guess. I'll post it online, too, at Until Justice at Twitter. Other folks who dialed in with commentary proceed can I be heard Z's mommy yes ma'am I apologize for the background noise I'm in a car but I did want to comment I thought the um, person who wrote the email I thought that was really interesting and the asking the five facts I can think of I don't know if I can think of five but the first one for me is that it was meant to be a bombing that was supposed to kill like 500 people, including their friends. I think the second one was, second important fact was that the police had a meeting during um, like the same day as Columbine was happening um, to discuss how they basically knew um, information specifically about Eric Harris and how to hide that fact. I thought that was a really interesting fact, too. Um, and I would say that the third one that I could think of right now is um, from, I, it wasn't from this book, but when I think how Dylan and Eric were actually not liked because they were constantly making, um, I guess, Nazi jokes and Heil Hitler and things like that when they were playing bowling. I thought that that's a really interesting fact as well. Um, in regards to the reading so far, I find it so interesting that Cohen adds so many details that I think are possibly not even relevant, i.e. like Frank, I think it was DeAngelis, or I, I don't know who the specific person was, but getting a letter from his high school um, sweetheart or something, and yet there's so little information about the show still. I thought that was really interesting. Um, I think, too, it discusses, um, I apologize because I forget his name, but he went to college at Colorado State for business administration. It talks about how he met a girl there that he really liked. It's, it, it's not very, 
I don't find the information that information to be very relevant. Also, even including, I, I feel like some of it is almost like an ad for this uh, Frank, uh, not Frank Gannis, um, for Fuselay, because I don't know how it's important to bring up um, the people who escaped from prison. I mean, I could see writing it in as one sentence, but to, to put in that much detail, I don't know how relevant it is to Columbine when you take into account that he didn't include, like, um, what you've previously discussed, like talking about how Dylan was um, wanted to write an essay about Jeffrey Dahmer or his interest in Charles Manson. All these other things are not included, but that's included. I find that to be really odd. The section about the basement tape was very interesting. I It just makes me feel like, like you were saying, that these two individuals are cowards, but they, they just seem like such... I don't think that this is a good word to use, but they just seem like such losers. I mean, at one point, Dylan is angry at toddlers in preschool who were mean to him. Apparently, they probably weren't. Um, and I do feel like their obsession and preoccupation with high school probably comes from the fact that they actually know themselves to probably be not that skilled and to actually be of a lower stratum of white people, and they don't actually want to, they actually don't see themselves as, you know, doing anything of value once they leave high school. So their preoccupation with high school um, makes some sense because, I mean, they're both about to graduate and leave. Dylan is supposed to be going to college, and yet who, who at, like, 17, about two months, away from high school would care so much about these people that you're leaving a different state and probably never going to interact with them again. I I don't think that, I think that they probably had an idea that they were not going to amount to much. Um, another thing that was interesting that reminded me of the part where Dylan was talking about the toddlers, um, there's a scene in Seabald's book where She's um, when they take Dylan to his college to tour it and to get his um, room. There's a part where they go to a restaurant and Dylan is um, sitting there with his parents, and there's a group of kids in the other seat um, across from them, and he keeps telling his parents, "These kids are laughing at me. We need to leave. They're laughing at me, and we need to go." And um, the parents are like, they're not laughing at you. They're not even looking at you. Um, and I think that these are the type of solutions that they had that the media somehow now believe that they were bullied. I find it hard to believe that they were bullied at all, especially when that type of, of passage I read, I was like, okay, this person is obviously um, has these type of delusional mindset. Um, and I think that's all I wanted to share for now. Thank you. Much obliged, Z's mom. We were in sync today. She hit many of the points that I had. Even in the takeaway points that I had written down before she spoke, she hit many of the same five points that I took away. Um, before I get to some of the other emails and such, there's so much supplementary material, or I guess it'll be two, since she mentioned Sue Klebold's book. I'm about 90% sold, especially since what she just said 
we are so well prepared to read Sue Klebold's book. Now, if folks are looking, you know, hey man, Jesus, you know, Gus doesn't let us vote for the books anymore, but I mean, Jiminy Christ, uh, I'm totally done with Columbine. It's got to be other things happening in the world and all that sort of thing. But man, we didn't know anything about this case just two months ago. Now we are a little bit more informed. Randy Brown, Brooks Brown's father, said he went to the funeral for Dylan Klebold, our beloved vodka. He said, that book is a lie. That is the second white person that I have heard connected to this case. Different white person was in the school when this happened. She also said, that book is a lie. That is one thing you can do with reading. Study how do white people practice deception. That's why that should be the follow-up to this book. And chronologically, because that book was published in 2016. So we have lots of folks who are like, you know, that's retarded. And We actually have a lot of people, they read that book already. I said, there's so much content. They jumped ahead. They got so excited. They finished this book. And then they went and read Sue Klebold's book. Then some of them, they went and read Jeff Cass's book. I mean, this book's for days. You can read Brooks Brown's book. You can read Randy Brown's book, where he talks trash about uh, Dave Cullen's book. Go on for days. Let's see. Uh, Dr. Angeline Spalding Flowers' book. She was on the program. Okay, let's see. Uh, the extra. So, Randy Brown, in his book in talking about Dave Cullen's book and saying that it's horrible and even saying I was interviewed for the book and it's trash. I think he calls it fiction. <laughs> he said it's terrible. Oh, worst thing ever. Uh, he says he could have at least mentioned the Regina Huerta report and that's H-E, excuse me, H-U-E-R-T-E-R. Report on bullying uh, that she did Let's see, this uh, was published in December of 2000, so about a year and a half after all of these events. Uh, it is chuckle-worthy for a number of reasons, so let's see. They, they uh, talk about some of the bullying that went on in PE, another form of bullying against students, a practicing Jew involved racial slurs and ethnic intimidation, including threatening by the bullies to build an oven and set him on fire in quotes each time a basket was made during P.E. basketball the bullies would state that's another Jew in the oven they also wrote a song to torment the victim they eventually told his father who immediately called his son's school counselor the school brought the bullies in and confronted them this you know white supremacy racism they got it and it even reminded me I thought they said that was how Dylan and Eric celebrated. They would do the salutes at bowling class. See, that's what I mean when Lauren said, this is just normal white behavior. Because there are other white students who are doing the exact same thing that they were doing, even the pipe bombs. So, I mean, what would stand out about all of this? Everybody loves Jeffrey Dahmer. Everybody loves Charles Manson. Everybody loves going out shooting. Apparently, everybody loves going out making pipe bombs. So, yeah, what would 
stand out as odd or strange about their behavior. So the report continues. The jocks. Oh, we got Divin. Okay, number G. Letter G, excuse me. Seven of those I interviewed knew Dylan and Eric. Everyone described them as loners and often the brunt of ridicule and bullying. Although no one had specifics about when and the degree of bullying they received, most often it was shoving, pushing, and name-calling, especially faggot. Now that, because they are vague about specifics and details and all that, even if they were called faggot, you talk about the same Dylan who was suspended for writing faggot on another student's locker? That's the person that you're talking about? Whatever. It continues. It was also noted by several people interviewed that Eric and Dylan, especially Eric, that's what's written, were no angels, In quote. They were often identified as rude and mean. I have never heard a white person referred to in that man. It is normally Tamir Rice and, you know, Brianna Brooks, and, you know, Brianna Taylor, excuse me, Brianna Taylor. Uh, hey, you know, that Eric Garner, he was no angel. Michael, uh, Michael Brown Jr., you know, he was no angel. Of course, they had felonies. Of course, we should know that they were no angels. Let's see. What else were the juicy horns? Uh... Oh, man, it was reported to me and found in several newspaper articles. The Washington Post has an amazing story about this, that one student had special parking privileges, allowing him to park his Hummer, his $100,000 Hummer in a special area. Uh, The stories varied from all day in a 15 minute parking space, a handicapped parking space in the teacher's parking lot, no less, or in a yellow stripe area close to the school entrance. A $100,000 Hummer for, uh, they are clowning out of control up here in Littleton. Like, man, we had went to school there. We would have better lives. And they talk about the drug use as well. Uh, PCP, weed, alcohol, and nobody cared. Just, you know, that's why I said, like, since everybody is doing this, what would stand out about their behavior as, oh, man, we should probably do something about. Anyway. Uh, let's see. Get my notes. I'll keep an eye if other folks have commentary. But matter of fact, since it was already mentioned, he gave that lame statistic about the numbers or the profile of shooters. That is just a flagrant lie. Period. Uh, I don't know what his credentials are. He's a journalist, whatever that means. We had Dr. Peter Langman on the program. He is renowned. He worked with Homeland Security, studied the data. I'm reading from his book. He says in two out of three populations of school shooters, white males were not a majority. It continues. One of the most common stereotypes of school shooters is that they are virtually always white males. This is a misconception. Among the shooters covered in this book, only... 58% were white males. Now, even that's important because of the demographics of that he's looking at. So for specifics, the percentage differed significantly. However, among secondary school perpetrators like high school Columbine, 79% are white males. 
that right there seems like whoa over I mean even if it had been 40% 49% 79% and I raised this point with Dr. Langman like dang it seems like we're doing some pussyfooting we don't want I mean if it was 79% of any other group if it was 49% it would be whoa 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 what's going on here 79% vodka and red that's about what I would expect now he looks at college shooters and all the rest of it that's where you get uh, Sung Hui Choi Virginia Tech somebody that the shooter at Michigan State earlier this year was a black male you have more non-white people once you get up to the college level even Elliot Roger non-white male with a white parent once you get up to the college level but in terms of like middle school high school shooters 79% and then what I just said Dr. Angel Lynn Flowers or Spalding Flowers she was with us earlier this year she talked about her book 20 years of school-based mass shootings in the U.S. Columbine de Santa Fe she says published in 2022 and looking at perpetrators it is important to shift the focus from perceiving shooters as mentally ill psychopaths to recognizing that social and environmental factors can contribute to poor mental health i.e. stress anxiety or emotional distress these are not mental illnesses a very small minority may suffer from severe mental illnesses but that is the exception rather than the norm the continued association of mass shootings with the thought that the perpetrator must be mentally ill enables avoidance of the fact that school shooters do not look like how criminals are expected to look therefore there has to be an explanation for their behavior until it is accepted that most school shooters are white males in relatively affluent suburban and rural communities like Littleton it will be impossible to direct intervention and prevention efforts in the right direction brilliant I wouldn't have read that book if we had not read Columbine and it was just published too this is like fresh 2022 guest on the program days ago kind of let's see the other make sure I didn't miss any of the other oh there is one other I have to pick I have to read some of my notes there is one other really important tidbit I have to share as well as we proceed let me see all right get to my notes from this i feel like the first time i get to share some of my notes in so long man learned so much stimulated so much of my brain computer reading this book okay when they talk about the documents when we had aforementioned dr langman on the program his book was published six years after the book that we're reading was published and even then he said there are still about 5,000 documents we do not have. That is an extraordinary amount of material. Why, and with so much corruption and malfeasance, why would they, and I mean, even look at that, you got to do all this fighting and scrapping and scraping and uh, even, even that, their conduct, that allowed all this nonsense with the bullying because you start going through those reports, Dr. Langman, uh, when he was on the program and you read and they're like well wait a minute 
they're talking to students and they're like, man, Dylan called me a bitch in gym class and shoved me on the ground. These are female students saying this. Like, wait a minute, I thought they were bullied. That's Jeffco holding up for years, letting everybody think this nonsense that, oh, yeah, they were just people picked on them and bullied them. And yeah, come on. Uh, let's see. Then, I mean, that's what I, I totally agree. There should have been criminal charges. If you're that corrupt that you can't even be trusted to hold to warehouse documents. Wow. And now think this is how they conducted themselves in a case with mostly white victims. How do police officers, enforcement officials behave when it's non-white people we know about the shooting part but the document handling and evidence and all the rest of it wow uh let's see all this bin laden propaganda and this sounds like you know you voted for george bush probably three times let's see um talking about cullen um mm -mm. he's going to conduct even this whole thing he says it sent Fusilier to conduct anti-terrorism training in third world countries, whatever that means. He spent a quarter of the year in sketchy sections of Pakistan, Tanzania, Malaysia, Macedonia, anywhere terrorists were active. Man, the terrorists are active at your son's school, buddy. Terrorists like Eric Rudolph, who wasn't even mentioned in this book. Terrorists like Timothy McVeigh. Terrorists like Ted Kaczynski, also not mentioned in this book. That's what you mean? Terrorists like Jeffrey Dahmer? That's what you mean? The terrorists are right here. I don't know what you're talking about in the Skeddy to name all these places that are populated by non-white people and they are sketchy. Almost sound like shady. Let's see. Michael Moore's bowling file. That's why I said so I feel so embarrassed that that was my sole source of information and even the title is wrong. That right there says a lot like dang. Michael Moore, you got the highest grossing documentary of all time, and the title is wrong. Most of the data. Hey, this was a failed bombing. He doesn't even make that point plain in the documentary. It's all this on gun control. Like, what about those propane tanks, man? If they had worked, the guns would have been just, oh, yeah, maybe they shot, you know, two people. They bombed and killed 400 people. My God. Let's see. Luvox came up with the Rona. I didn't even know that. People were saying to take Luvox that was with the Invermectin and all the rest of it. I couldn't believe it. Like, are you serious? <sighs> Can't believe it. Uh, let's see. There's a movie, Don Anna. This is what I thought was repulsive. They have so many Columbine movies. It is staggering. You can binge watch for like a week. So, I mean, like every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, right all the way through. And I'm documentaries, Hollywood, docudramas, you can take your pick. It is stunning. Donna Ann, there's a whole movie about Donna Ann. Now, this is one of the Hollywood films. This tacky thing, oh my God, they got like the love story and mm, Donna is sexy. All this nonsense leading up to her daughter uh, dying like, whoa, wait a minute. They don't have anything in there about Donna Ann called for the depositions to be made public, understanding the warning signs could prevent the next Columbine. A chorus gathered behind her, a magistrate ruled that the transcripts would be destroyed per the agreement that set off a public outcry and a wave of public records requests. Judge Babcock agreed to consider arguments. That's not in there at all. 
that is way more important than mm, that Donna Ann is sexy. Mm, come on. Let's fast, but like there, I, there should be whole books just on the police corruption in this case. You can fast forward the shooting. We got all that. Just go, or really go back and give us start from day one with, oh man, are these the kids we were supposed to do the search? Oh God, they already got fell. Oh, we going to be in trouble. Like start right there. Start right there and then just track what were all of the end. This went through multiple. They had sheriffs leave, Sheriff Stone leave. Then you get Sheriff Mink. He comes in. Now nah, we're not going to release the basin there. That is the book we need. Not mm-hmm, that Donna Ann sure is sexy. Mm-hmm. Let's see. I don't know what the confidentiality. I have no idea. I thought it's supposed to be about transparency in the 21st century. Whom did confidentiality benefit in the case of these murdered children and uh, Coach Saunders? The Klebold parents, maybe? The Harris family, maybe? Jefferson County sheriffs, maybe, for their corruption and all this? Uh, let's see. They they have the utmost fusillade with the FBI. I have the utmost sympathy for the Harris and Klebold parents. I do not. Based on what I've read in this book, why would I? Oh, that's why I said we need to read Sue Klebold's book, but I do not. I mean, really? Why would I be sympathetic? You found a pipe bomb, a pipe bomb that your child made. You got all of this. They got felony arrest. They get suspended from school. You got all of this. What did they're making pipe bombs? They're sawing off shotguns in your garage. They're storing napalm at your house. The drinking and all of it. No, I don't sympathize with them. Do your job. What is Don't have the children. Especially, oh man, we have got to read Sue Klebold's because I mean, really, particularly if you're just going to come out and just make up whole total unnecessary lies to try and cover for all of this like oh man same thing I just said criminal negligence for the parents the police maybe even the school Uh, let's see I do not think Eric is a psychopath Uh, I do not think that that is the case at all so many people have said that he just what Lauren said natural normal I do not think he is a uh, psychopath I think that is total uh, deception and cheating oh he's just crazy no not at all uh, they said he hung out he had friends he was on all these teams and everything else he is normal I'm going to take them for what they're saying uh, let's see everybody I said they have the this must be the town with the highest collection of intelligent individuals classified as white in the known galaxy like they said that Patrick Ireland he gets to leave and go to school and he meets this girl and she is clever and attract like dang do they have any just feeble minded like eh, I'm not too smart uh, you have a remedial guy everybody here is an absolute genius let's see uh, 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 uh. and they get all kinds of experiment it just continues so we're at the high school where they got the hundred thousand dollar hummers and the video program where you can check out video cameras in the 90s 
they got the smokers lounge on campus and all the rest of it and then even after all this patrick ireland he gets shot balls out the window and all the surgery and disabilities hey i'm gonna get a custom refined boot contraption so that i can go out and water surf come on let's see uh, 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 uh we got that about the school shooters man when they gave the warning signs this right here they said bobby e Wright, doctor psychopathic racial personality other essays the fbi compiled a specific list of warning signs including symptoms of both psychopathy and depression manipulation intolerance superiority narcissism alienation rigidity lethargy dehumanization of others and externalizing blame that is almost to a t white culture and i mean every bit of the externalizing blame oh my god paul mooney blaming a negro dehumanization of others oh my god we got racist jokes every day isaiah Scholl said that before this even happened alienation they say that all the time in lieu of white supremacy racism narcissism dr welsing has the whole chapter in the book i'm superior i'm dominant i know more than everybody else in the world superiority we got that right there i'm supposed to get all this attention i'm dominant you all are dumb and stupid entire i mean all of it even the depression uh in my opinion all of manipulation that's just deception and lying tricking people to their detriment that's all that's, all of that that's what they celebrate that's in the middle. Natural born killer. Uh, let's see. Sung Hui Choi at Virginia Tech 2007. Uh, he talked about and was a huge fan of these cowards at Columbine. Again, if they had released accurate information from the beginning, that could have helped forestall some of this at least. That's not what happened. Uh, and they call it judgment religion of white supremacy call this NBK aka judgment day uh, 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 I just mentioned they got cameras that who, who I don't know who was in school in the 90s or even the 2000s did you have a school where you could check out video cameras college I mean not college high school middle school hmm? uh, let's see Eric named one guy he planned to shoot in the balls that's Welsing moment. I would love to know who that was, but that's Welsing moment. But I mean, really, what kind of cowardly, no count dude are you? You sitting around thinking about shooting people in the groin? Really? Who does that? Oh, the Castro. Uh, oh, the, that's why I said, like, really, this is just the same thing that I've heard. Like, I see why everybody would say, oh, yeah, this is, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's see. Uh, and then we get to the basement tape. I can save the rest of mine for the rest with the basement tapes. So there is a little bit of additional news clip and then it gets back to the book. And I did that because what I just said, and it should have been at the beginning, that right there is manipulation. That should be the very first word said, hey, I didn't see these tapes, but I did my diligence and I'm going to write. That would be valid. Okay, you haven't tried to pull one over on us, as they say, but you're doing all this talking like you've seen them and you didn't. Hmm. 
Well, let's hear from some people who did see the tapes, and then we'll get back to Dave Collins' Columbine on the Catherine Massey Book Club. Far different from the images at Columbine High School, and yet just as frightening, were the home videos made by Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold in the weeks, days, even hours before they went on their rampage. The full tapes have never been made public, but in December, the sheriff's office invited a handful of reporters to take a look. Last week, we asked some of those reporters to tell us what the tapes were like. The tape that was made in the basement of, of uh, Eric Harris's home uh, started out with them sitting in the armchairs and uh, talking back and forth about their hatred for other human beings. Harris was sitting in his chair holding this sawed-off shotgun. He wasn't just holding it. He was fondling it. He was playing with it. He had named it. He had named it Arlene. He kissed his shotgun at, at one point as he's, he's talking, and he points it at the camera. And he said, do you believe in God? Bam, 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 bam. Everybody in the room, there was a gasp in the room when we saw that. This was planned. It was knowing that all of this went into what they did um, that just was stunning. And to actually see this kind of video diary of before we went and did the deed was, uh, was powerful, uh, was very eerie. They talked about how much they hated humanity and how worthless human beings were. And they included themselves among that. They said, they said, you all need to die, and we need to die too. It was almost as if, you know, they were going to a, a video game contest. How many can we kill? How many can we knock off? Uh, it, it was this detachment. How laid back they were about all this. How sort of indifferent, as if there was a disconnect between, between this, uh, reality and, and the fantasy life that they had. And that was driven home when they talked about coming back in the afterlife, if there was one, and coming back in a doom room would be a, an ideal thing for them. He talked about dying and said that he hoped he would be at the third level or at one of the levels of the doom game. That's where his heaven was. They got the camera off of the tripod, and, and uh, Klebold held it, and uh, Harris gave a demonstration of everything that was in his room. That was quite amazing to have him just open a couple of drawers or pull some books back and reach in and pull out some of these little uh, CO2 cartridge uh, grenades, essentially, that he had made and other pipe bombs that he had. At one point, Harris is telling the story about how his mom walked in his room and the shotgun was close by, the sawed-off shotgun, and under something. And he was mocking her for not having checked the room. If you'd have just checked the room, you'd have found this. And then he said, they didn't have a clue. But they had some compassion in them because they talked about the pain that their parents were going to go through. He said, quoting Shakespeare, good wombs hath bore bad sons. Uh, he, he quoted that about himself. And I think that is really the point. I mean, that's the exclamation point on this whole thing. Uh, he hated himself, and Klebold hated himself. Klebold says, I'm going to a better place. I didn't like life too much. I'm going to a better place. And he says this as he's suiting up, as he's getting his things ready. Minutes, you know, half an hour maybe, before it all happened, 
putting their gear on, getting ready to go. Very businesslike, very cold, very calculated. No more of the swagger, no more of the, you know, the teenage joking around and so forth. Uh, one of them said, it's judgment day. Klebold harbored as much hate as Harris did. These two guys were in this together. There's no question. There was no follower and, and leader. I think everyone on earth wishes that, wish they would have explained more and, and stood to answer for their crimes instead of being, um, well, mad in the end, mad and cowardly, because how can you not be to, to do all of that and then kill yourself? Agent Fuselier watched the tapes dozens of times. In one respect, they were a revelation. While the journals explained motive, the tapes conveyed personality. There was ample testimony about them from friends, but there's nothing like meeting a killer in person. The tapes offered the best approximation. Fuselier understood that the basement tapes had been shot for an audience. They were partially performance for the public, for the cops, and for each other. Dylan, in particular, was working his heart out to show Eric how invested he was. To Lehman, Dylan appeared dominant. He was louder, brasher, and had much more personality. Eric preferred directing. He was often behind the lens, but he was always in charge. Usually saw Dylan gave himself away with his eyes. He would shout like a madman, then glance at his partner for approval. How was that? The basement tapes were a fusion of invented characters with the real killers. But the characters the killers chose were revealing, too. Eric had a new idea. Columbine would remain the centerpiece of his apocalypse, but maybe he could make it bolder. Trip bombs and landmines? Nothing fancy, just simple explosives. Expansion would require additional manpower. Eric began recruitment plans. Around the end of March, Eric approached Chris Morris. What if they strung up a trip bomb right there behind Blackjack? That hole in the fence would be perfect. Kids crawled through there all the time. Chris was unenthusiastic. A bomb for pesky kids? Sounds a little extreme, he said. Eric backpedaled. The bomb would not actually hit the kids, just scare the shit out of them. No, Chris said. Definitely not. Chris was starting to worry. Eric and Dylan were making a lot of bombs. They had blown a bunch off, and he was hearing stories from all kinds of kids about them getting guns. Chris noticed the change in Eric. He was acting aggressive all of a sudden, picking fights with people for no good reason. Nate Dykeman saw something, too, in both Eric and Dylan, cutting classes more, sleeping in class, acting secretive. No one said anything. Eric made at least three attempts to recruit Chris Morris, though Chris did not grasp that at the time. Some of the overtures came in the form of jokes. Wouldn't it be fun to kill all the jocks? he asked in bowling class. Why stop there? Why not blow up the whole school? How hard would it be, really? Chris assumed Eric was joking. But still. Come on, Eric said. They could put bombs on the power generators. That ought to take out the school. Chris said enough. He turned to talk to someone else. That is a standard recruitment technique for aspiring mass murderers, Fuselier explained. They toss out the idea, and if it's shunned, it's a joke. If the person lights up, the recruiter proceeds to the next step. When news of Eric's crack about killing the jocks was reported, many took it as a confirmation of the target motive. 
Eric was a much wilier recruiter than that. He always played to the audience in front of him. He nearly always gauged their desires correctly. Suggesting the jocks didn't mean he wanted to single them out. It indicated he thought the idea would appeal to Chris. Of course, Eric would enjoy killing jocks, too, along with niggers, spicks, fags, and every other group he railed against. Dylan was leaking indiscriminately now. He made several public displays of the pipe bombs. These grew far more frequent as NBK came within sight. A lot of people knew about the guns and the pipe bombs. Eric and Dylan were setting off more and more of them, getting bolder with whom they let in on it. In February or March, Eric spelled something even scarier. Napalm. It happened at a party at Robin's house. Eric had not been friends with Zach since their falling out the past summer. But Eric needed something. He could not get the napalm recipes off the web to work. Zach was good with that kind of thing. Eric had a pretty good idea that Zach was the man to help him. Eric walked up to Zach good-naturedly, asked him how he was doing, chatted him up a while. They talked about their futures. Zach and Eric left the party at the same time and drove separately to a supermarket, King Supers. Zach bought a soda and candy bar and waited for Eric back in the parking lot. Eric came out and showed him a soda and a box of bleach. Bleach? What was the bleach for? Zach asked. Eric said he was going to try it. Try what? Napalm. Eric said he was going to try napalm. Did Zack know how to make it? No. Zack told the story to the investigators after the murders, but he lied the first time. He described Robin's party, but edited out the napalm. He agreed to a polygraph, and just before they strapped him in, he confessed to the rest. He said the conversation went no further, and he never discussed napalm or the shotguns again, with Eric, Dylan, or anyone else. The results of his polygraph were inconclusive. Eric also asked Chris to store napalm at his house. Eric and Dylan joked about it on the basement tapes. Napalm better not freeze at that certain person's house. They disguised his identity at first, but then referred to Chris Pizza's house. Crafty. Chris Morris later testified that it was indeed him and that he'd refused. No time. Less than a month to go. Eric had a lot of shit left to do. He organized it into a list labeled Shit left to do. He had to figure out napalm, acquire more ammo, find a laser aiming device, practice gear-ups, prepare final explosives, and determine the peak killing moment. One item was apparently not accomplished. Get laid. April 2nd, Staff Sergeant Mark Gonzalez cold-called Eric about enlisting in the Marines. Eric said maybe. They talked several times. That same month, he returned to the Book of God. Months had passed. A whole lot had happened. He had 39 crickets ready, 24 pipe bombs, and all four guns. Eric closed up the journal. That was done. Eric met Sergeant Gonzalez. He wore a black Ramstein T-shirt, black pants, and black combat boots. He took a screening test and got an average score. The sergeant asked Eric to describe himself by selecting among tabs labeled with personal attributes. He chose physical fitness, leadership and self-reliance, and self-discipline and self-direction. He would think about enlisting and talk it over with his parents. He agreed to a home visit with his parents. 
It's not clear what Eric was getting out of the exercise. He probably had multiple motives. He had always pictured himself as a Marine. He might enjoy a last-minute taste. And he needed information. He was still struggling with the time bombs and the napalm. He told Gonzalez he was interested in weapons and demolitions training, and he asked a lot of questions. But his parents were probably the key motive. They kept hounding Eric about his future. This would get them off his back. Two weeks of tranquility, breathing room to maneuver. Eric shot the next video scene on his own, in his car, driving with the camera facing him from the dash. He had the music blaring, so much of what he said is unclear. He talked about the blackjack crew and apologized for what was ahead. Sorry, dudes. I had to do what I had to do. He was going to miss them. He was really going to miss Bob, his old boss who'd gotten drunk on the roof with him. Eric still couldn't decide on the timing of the attack, before prom or after. It is a weird feeling knowing you're going to be dead in two and a half weeks, he said. April 9th was Eric's birthday, 18 years old, officially an adult. He got together with a bunch of friends at a local hangout. A couple of days before or after, a friend saw Eric and Dylan in the cafeteria, huddled over a piece of paper. What was going on? she asked. They tried to hide it. She played it cool, then snatched the paper away. It was a hand-drawn diagram of the cafeteria, showing details like the location of surveillance cameras. That was weird. Eric made several more diagrams. He conducted his inventory of cafeteria traffic. He did not allow that to be seen. The boys shot more tapes. NBK would make for one hell of a graduation, they said. Lots of people crying, probably a candlelight vigil. Too bad they wouldn't see it. They congratulated themselves for documenting all this. But the cops would get the tapes first. Do you think they'll let people see them? Dylan asked. Probably not. The cops would chop up all their footage and show the public how they wanted it to look. That could be a problem. They resolved to copy the videos and distribute them to four news stations. Eric would scan his journal and email it with maps and blueprints. They never got around to that. On Sunday, the boys headed into Denver for supplies. Of course, they brought the camcorder. This was history. They picked up fuel containers and propane bottles. Dylan got his army pants. Eric seems to have been funding most of the operation, but Dylan paid his share this time. He brought 200 in cash. Eric had a check for 150 The next shot was in Eric's bedroom, alone. He sat on his bed, pointing the camera at his face from a few inches away, producing an eerie, fish-eye effect. Eric talked about his best parents again, and the cops making them pay. It fucking sucks to do this to them, he said. They're going to be put through hell. They could not have stopped him, Eric assured them. He quoted Shakespeare, Good wounds have borne bad sons. He wrote the same line in his day planner on the page for Mother's Day. That was revealing, Fusilay thought. Dylan wanted to be a good boy, but Eric understood he was evil. It was funny, Eric told the television audience, all that razzing from his parents about goals, and he was working his ass off. It's kind of hard on me these last few days, he said. This is my last week on Earth, and they don't know. The payoff would be worth it. 
The apocalypse is coming, and it's starting in eight days, he said. He licked his lips. Oh, yeah, it's coming, all right. Then he held up his masterpiece. This is the Book of God, he said. This is the thought process. If you want to understand why, read this. He flipped through to show off his best work. Somehow, I'll publish these. He stopped at a sketch in the back of himself or Dylan in battle gear. The soldier was outfitted with a huge tank to be strapped to his back. It was labeled Napalm. He pointed to it and said, This is the suicide plan. Five days before judgment, Dylan finally accepted that he was enacting it. Time to die, he wrote. We are in weight of our reward, each other. We. The word dominates the entry, but does not include Eric. Dylan was addressing Harriet. He was grateful to Eric for providing the exit, but was uninterested in spending eternity with him. Thursday evening. The Marine recruiter showed up for the home visit at 6 p.m. Wayne and Kathy had lots of questions about job opportunities in the Corps. Kathy asked whether antidepressants would affect Eric's eligibility. She fetched the prescription bottle, and Sergeant Gonzalez wrote down, Blue Vox. He said he would check and call back, like Eric cared. He had been invoking the Marines in his war fantasies all his life, but all he really wanted out of the Corps was the prestige of its patch on his shoulder. Eric never depicted himself supporting a squadron, and certainly not taking orders. It was always an army of one or two, and the mission was about him, not country or his corps. Gonzalez phoned on Friday or Saturday and left a message to call him back. Eric never bothered. Mr. D provided a dose of irony. He wrapped up Friday's assembly talking about everyone coming back alive. Perfect. The boys picked up more propane that day. Eric hounded Mark Maines for ammo. The delay probably pushed NBK from April 19th to April 20th. Eric spent the night at Dillon's. That surprised Tom and Sue Klebold. They had not seen Eric in six months. The boys came in after 10 p.m. Dylan was nervous. Tom could hear it in his voice. His pitch was a little off. Tom described it later as tight. He made a mental note to talk to Dylan about it. He never got to it. Eric came with a great big duffel bag stuffed with something. It was oversized and bulky, and he was having trouble carrying it. Tom assumed it was a computer. It was a weapons cache for a final fashion show. They filmed it, of course. The only scene from the basement tapes shot at Dylan's. Eric directed, as usual. Dylan strapped on gear, harness, ammo pouches, and when he got to the knives, he joked about a certain sophomore's head impaled on one. He slung the Tech-9 over his shoulder and slid the shotgun into the cargo pocket on his pants. Then he strapped it in with the webbing to secure it into place. He needed his backpack. Dylan went digging for it in the closet and ran into his tux, hanging up for prom tomorrow night. Whatever. He turned to the camera to rub it in. Robin, I didn't really want to go to prom, but since I'm going to be dying, I thought I might do something cool. Plus, he said... His parents were paying for it. Dylan pulled his trench coat on, struck a pose in the mirror. This was his entrance outfit. It was going to be so badass. It looked lumpy. I'm fat on this side, he complained. 
The whole point was impressing people. Details mattered. Wardrobe, staging, atmospherics, audio, pyrotechnics, action, suspense, timing, irony, foreshadowing. All the cinematic elements were important. And for the local audience, they were adding aroma, sulfur, burning flesh, and fear. Dylan tried his next pose, and that was a problem, too. His very first move, once the scene got rolling, was to snatch the tech out of its sling and toss it to his firing hand in a single dramatic motion. His trench coat got in the way. He tried it again. Lame. Faster, Eric said. He was visibly annoyed. He had practiced every move to perfection. Dylan was trying all this shit for the first time. Eric left around 9 a.m. without the duffel bag. The boys may have stayed up all night. Tom and Sue noticed that Dylan's bed didn't look slept in. Saturday was all about prom. Dylan came home at 3 a.m., and Sue was up to greet him. How was it? she asked. Dylan showed her a schnapps flask. He told her he'd only drunk a little. The rest of the group was going to breakfast, he said. He was tired. He was done. He slept it off most of the next day. Monday morning, around 9 o'clock, Dylan grabbed his spiral notebook and drew the top of a giant numeral 1. He drew the bottom of it at the foot of the page, with a big gap in between for copy. 1. One day. 1 is the beginning, or the end. Ha ha ha! Rescued! Yet there. About 26.5 hours from now, the judgment will begin, difficult but not impossible, necessary, nerve-wracking, and fun. It was interesting, he said, knowing he was going to die. Everything had a touch of triviality. Calculus really did turn out to have no practical application in his life. The last word is hard to read, but it appears to be ficht, German slang for fucked. In his last 24 hours, Dylan got active. He drew up full-page sketches of himself in body armor, front and back displays geared up with explosives. One of the last pages included a brief schedule for NBK, now pushed back to Tuesday. It ended like this. When first bombs go off, attack. Have fun. Monday night, the boys went out to dinner with friends. They went to Outback Steakhouse, Eric's favorite restaurant. Dylan had some coupons so they could economize. His mom asked how it was when he got home. Good, he said. They'd had a nice time. He had himself a nice steak. Eric got the final two boxes of ammo from Mark Maines and said he might go shooting tomorrow. He didn't get a lot of sleep that night, if any. He was still awake past 2 a.m., three hours before his wake-up call. He had a few reflections to add to his audio memoirs. He spoke into a microcassette recorder, indicating that there were fewer than nine hours to go. People will die because of me, Eric said. It will be a day that will be remembered forever. Tuesday morning, the boys rose early. Tom and Sue heard Dylan leave around 5.15. They assumed he was on his way to bowling class. They did not see him. Bye, he called out. Then they heard the door shut. Eric left his microcassette on the kitchen counter. It was an old tape, reused, and someone had labeled it Nixon, somewhere along the line. The meaning of that label perplexed observers for years to come. It meant nothing. All righty.
that will wrap us for this week and we will wrap this book next week all done uh, last what is it last one two three last three chapters and we will bid Dave Cullen adieu uh, Catherine Massey book club number 605 313-513-164-decode-564-943-pound. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. If you did not get to join in the first time around, Go ahead and get a hand up now. That way we will make sure that we make time to include you. Do not wait until the last moment. Let us see. Uh, Irie, we did not hear from first time around. Let's see. Irie, did you have comments here you wanted to share? Yes. Good evening. Um, if someone mentioned this already, pardon me, but... Um, when they talked about him fondling the shotgun and naming it uh, Arlene, it reminded me of, um, I think it's a mental illness. Well, perhaps it's more natural for people classified as white. I don't know. But it reminded me of a condition called object sexuality, where mostly white people, from what I've seen, say they're in relationships with objects and even um, sate themselves physically with the objects, which made me think perhaps that's why he wanted so hard to have intercourse before he died because he had been experiencing sexual pleasure from the thought of his terrorist plans and from the shotgun. Um, and just more proof of the psychopathy of, you know, people classified as white. That, that's all I want to share. Thank you. Much obliged, Irie. Mm. Oh, thank you for reminding me. Okay. Last week, uh, it was one of our listeners was commenting because I think they mentioned that last week that Eric named his shotgun Arlene, and they were thinking it might be the movie character. I think from <clears throat> Full Metal Jacket, which I suspect that they did see lots of violence and killing. That shotgun is named Arlene for the book fiction and video game Doom. There is a character in that game named Arlene Sanders. Ironically, Dave Sanders, but um, she's a character in the game. So that's Arlene. That's where that name specifically comes from. Everything, it seems, goes back to Doom, Natural Born Killers. Uh, let's see. We will, much obliged again to I read him fondling the gun. Many Welsing moments here on that one email. Then we'll get back to the phone line, star six one for folks who uh, have commentary. Uh, so 
different listener, email number two, writes in, Hi Gus and callers, audience. My view is Cullen doesn't cover the death of Isaiah Shoals because he's covering for Eric and Dylan's racism, and he is also a white supremacist. <clears throat> Number two, overall, I think Cullen is critical of the parents of the children who were killed, Michael Shoals in particular, but in general, doesn't have much empathy for them or understanding of why they sued in contrast to his lack of critique of the Klebolds and the Harris family. Yes, he was very matter-of-fact about their lawsuit with no negative critiques. Even Fusilis, I have so much sympathy. Klebolds, Harris's, oh. <laughs> yes. Number three. Of all the people who caped for Eric and Dylan, I will show some understanding to Brooks and his mother. Why? because I can see that there would be an element of genuine conflict about Dylan as he did tell Brooks that Eric had planned to kill him which in effect saved his life. However, Sue Klebold is an excellent manipulator that was in the list they were running down. This is the profile. Manipulative. And Sue used Brooks and his mother as her mouthpiece. Number four, definition of mass murder. The act of killing a number of people in a single incident or over a short time period involving more than two victims and typically a large number. Who knows why Eric and Dylan didn't kill more people? They killed 13 but shot an additional 24 so their kill number could have been higher. I would also increase the number to include the people who committed suicide as a result of the massacre. That's a good point. I would, yeah, good point, good point. Um, I, I also, someone even touched on the human element of this. When they were doing their shooting in the library, Eric, I think it's Casey Bernal, he taps Peekaboo, he shoots her, the gun recoils, and they even have the science of this, when you make it illegal and shave off the, the barrel or sh shave the stock down, that increases the recoil on the gun so it becomes really strong when you shave it down short as they did so it recoils and it breaks his nose uh, and witnesses talked about he had uh, blood around his mouth streaming down and you break your nose it's going to bleed profusely and I, I, I think it was late like I'd seen a lot of footage at this point but it was a doctor who was saying you know or it might have been an enforcement official but there is a human element. I think most people, if you, you know, had a nosebleed or any sort of injury, even if you are riled up and angry and ready to fight and all the rest of it, like after a while, like at a certain point that adrenaline wears off and it's, oh man, my nose hurts or, oh man, I'm bleeding profusely, which takes away some of your energy. And some people even noted from the point where Eric gets his nose broken he is a lot less excited and it might just be, oh man, I've lost a bit of blood. I'm a little tired. Oof. <laughs> I need to sit down. Do you have an orange? That sort of thing. Um, that seemed to have, I mean, and that's just human element. That would be the case for everybody. Uh, let's see. Number five, Geraldo Rivera interview was repulsive and designed to convince the world that she is an excellent parent and Dylan was innocent. 
the apple didn't fall far from the tree as we can see I believe she coldly crafted her strategy to ensure her narrative about Dylan's role in the massacre Eric being the ringleader and the parents being unaware or the day of the massacre perhaps whilst the shooting was taking place number six uh, thank you for sending the additional resources the Raldo interview reminded me of Bowling for Columbine racists continue to use examples of non-white children who have committed shootings in schools as a way of distracting from the crimes of mass murderers the crimes do not compare he shot one teacher this is not mass murder number seven Cullen wrote that Eric and Dylan decided on the date of the killing April a year before glossing over the significance of the date the links to the Oklahoma City bombing and Hitler's birthday I for sure think they should be points of emphasis particularly the original date I imagine that but particularly the original date because this is a bombing and they said specifically we want to kill more people than Timothy McVeigh like geez that that even that to the that's who we're celebrating they're competing to see how many children they can kill number eight Cullen also wrote that Dylan's Cullen also wrote about Dylan searching for God. The basement tapes makes clear his commitment to the religion of white supremacy. Indeed. Indeed. Even they call it a judgment day. We are God. That's also religion of white supremacy. Number nine. Cullen and Dylan took the easy <clears throat> essay. Sorry. Cullen said Dylan took the essay he wrote about the attack they were planning with him on the day of the massacre, but that it was not for our benefit. I wonder how Cullen knows that. I think it was Dylan's sadistic way of telling the world he could not have been stopped and that he was everything the concerned teacher thought he was. If memory is correct, I think Cullen thought he wanted this notebook destroyed because it was in the car and the bomb was there. So this was supposed to have been destroyed with the bomb in the car. I think that's why he reasoned that he didn't want us to see this. But we'll see yeah because if it was with the bomb I'd say yeah probably the intent was that we were not going to see this uh, number 10 I've said it before but I will repeat that this book is full of sexual innuendo Dave Cullen is very suspect on many levels keep in mind this issue is about a school shooting children attend schools number 11 Wayne Harris had was in the Air Force he must have recognized the smell of the explosives Eric was cooking up in the kitchen, right? Hey, I said, he's making napalm, experimenting making napalm. That's heating up gas in the house. And then you got to do the bomb construction and all of that and the powder and everything. I mean, number 12. Eric Vike is evidence that Eric and Dylan indeed had bright futures ahead of them. Eric Vike is supposedly doing very well video editing. He's not in greater confinement. He's not blowing things up living a great white life number 13 Fusilier's son creating that video is no surprise. White people's fascination with death and carnage is a clear theme of the book and should be a warning to non-white people it's not just the likes of Eric and Dylan and Christy that are harboring these thoughts number 14 white people do not 
care about children. You can say that every page for this book for a variety of different reasons. Anywho, much obliged uh, for the written commentary. Uh, the was one more. Oh, the children. The sexual innuendo with children. I see, man, in another universe, we would read Parkland as the next book for many reasons. One of which, uh, the Parkland coward killer, he was obsessed with Columbine, was looking up their material, listed himself as a professional school shooter, idolized. I think he used the same type of language that he thought of these two as gods and all the rest of it. So he was super inspired by what these two cowards did beyond all of that too why would you become like a serial mass murder writer child killer writer and then like I said to see if the sexual innuendo is that pattern persistent even in the Parkland text but that would be another universe and you know I don't know if we need to read that much of Dave Cullen but for people who are in I mean that really is a part of the Columbine studies as would be Virginia Tech 2007 same reason so for other folks that might be something you know does that sexual innuendo does that continue in the Parkland book in the way that he talks about that killer we'll see let's see other folks who dialed in with a hand up let's see Lauren should be with us nab other hands as I see folks let's see May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Um, good evening, everyone. Thank you for allowing me to speak. I, I wanted to get started with something that was from the last segment. It says they insulted the usual inferiors, Blacks, Latinos, gays, and women. Yes, moms, stay home, Eric said. Fucking make me dinner, bitch. Mm. Sometimes Eric gets loud, and that made Dylan nervous. It was after 1 a.m., and Eric's parents were upstairs snoozing away. Careful, Dylan warned. He didn't put the careful in quotes, but um, I, what I was wondering is how did Dave Cullen know that um, Dylan, how Dylan was feeling? Like, I can see writing, you know, that he told Eric to be careful or to be more quiet, but how could he know how Dylan was feeling? And also, in a kind of kind of related, it was another part in the segment we just heard. Um, it said, of course, Eric would enjoy killing jocks too, along with niggers, sticks, fags, and every other group he railed against. So with those two sections, it's pretty hard um, to say that these two did not practice racism um, and I think this was the only time the word nigger appealed, uh, appeared in the book. Um, number two, he described a sophomore who didn't deserve the jaw evolution gave him. Look for his jaw, Dylan said. It won't be on his body. I think this is another natural selection reference. Um, I had another thought from that uh interview with uh, the Klebo parents and the so-called police. Uh, Mr. Klebo said that he and his wife were not absentee parents and that they were always there for Dylan. 
Well, if that's true, then they knew about Dylan's incorrect behavior, his incorrect thoughts and plans. Um, both of those can't be true. It can't be true that they were not absentee parents and that they were always there for Dylan. And it's also true um, that they had no idea what was going to happen. One of those can be true. I guess I'm just pointing this out to um, say that I think these people are practicing deception. Um, Gus, uh, you said you didn't think Eric um, was a psychopath. Um, I think uh, psychopathy or having psychopathic characteristics is typical for white people. I think Eric really could have been a psychopath, um, but don't take that to mean that I think he was crazy. I don't think he was. Uh, psychopathy is characterized by superficial charm, high intelligence, lack of remorse or shame, grandiose sense of self-worth, um, pathological lying, manipulative behavior, juvenile delinquency, all those things seem to describe Eric. Um, I also looked, um, I was trying to find a definition of mental illness. And um, what I found is that mental illness is a health condition involving changes in emotion, thinking, or behavior. And the way these people think and behave, I don't think it was a change. I think this is how he always was. And even in chapter 40, which I got to say, my um, favorite chapter of the entire book, um, when they are describing the five-year-old, what I think is a white child, um, it says, Dr. Hare described a five-year-old girl repeatedly attempting to flush her kitten down the toilet. I caught her just as she was about to try again, the mother said. She seemed quite unconcerned, maybe a bit angry about being found out. When the woman told her husband, the girl calmly denied the whole thing. Shame did not register, neither did fear. Psychopaths are not individuals losing touch with those emotions. They never developed them from the start. And if that's accurate, Okay, if we accept that sentence as true, if there was never a change, then it's possible that uh, mental psych psychopathy is not a mental illness. Um, I also I started thinking about, you know, racism being a mental illness. And I was looking on the interwebs, and there was a doctor named Rebecca Coons. And she said, mental illnesses are conditions that impair our ability to function in a certain society or a certain culture. So in a very real way, our culture decides what is mentally ill and what is not. And in her opinion, racism does not impair how one functions in society. I would argue that racism allows individuals to function perfectly well in American society because of how widespread, accepted, and ingrained racism is, Coons doesn't think people should classify racism as a mental illness. Um, so, yeah, I just, I thought I'd share that and just, you know, let you guys know, I, I think it's quite possible these two were psychopaths, especially Eric, um, but I'm asserting that that doesn't mean they're crazy. Even if they are psychopaths, it's probably, I think psycho, psychopathy is just very typical for racist men, racist women, 
and racist child. Um, also, I would be interested in reading Sue Klebold's book, if that's what you want to do on the next book club. And that's all I have for now. Thank you. Much obliged. Lauren, let's see. Do, 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 do. Uh, other folks that they are on the phone line, do not wait till the last moment if you have commentary. Let's see. Make sure I did not miss <clears throat> any of the other emails. Okay. Chapter 50, finishing the first email number one that I read. Chapter 50, number two, page 349. Of course, Eric would enjoy killing jocks too, along with niggers, fics, fags, blah, blah, blah. Niggers, fics, and fags seem to go together. Conflation. Uh, number three, chapter, or excuse me, number three, page 352. He wrote the same line in his day planner on the page for Mother's Day that was revealing Fusillet thought. Dylan wanted to be a good boy, but Eric understood he was evil. Given your supplementary information, Fuselet may be the main proponent of the theory, which I think is BS, that Dylan's good and Eric is evil. Again, I think Fuselet should have been <clears throat> recused because of multiple reasons. He's got a child, and then his previous child also was looking to blow up the school. That would be two good reasons. Let's see. Make sure I didn't miss any other emails. Oh, 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 oh. one more, one more. Our caller, uh, the Fresh Princess of Philadelphia, uh, writes in, Greetings, Gus and callers. This book is clearly pro-Dylan and the Klebolds. Now, people were thinking before, like some of the, like uh, Patrick Ireland, like we're saying like, dang, did we really need to know his whole like dating life? He did that last week too when he went back to school. Remember, he was telling us he was dating all the young chicks and everything else. Like, do we really need to know all this? Could we have thinned that out maybe a little bit and gave some details about the shoals or police corruption, something, or even thin the book out a little bit maybe? Maybe the people that got all that extra treatment, maybe they were really nice to them. They chummed it up with him, talked to him shared all of that gave him all the time that he wanted to he really hooked them up in the book maybe that's how it worked maybe including the Klebolds maybe I don't know we'll think on that anyway she continues uh, I'm confused as to how only one out of the two murderers who planned the attack is portrayed as a culprit and the other is a near innocent victim my five key takeaways from the text are Number one, people classified as white control information, who gets the information, and how much of the information they want you to have. 2027. This is evidenced by the parents' sealed deposition and the heavily redacted evidence file that was provided to the families of victims and survivors of the massacre. Two, people classified as white cover for each other and exemplify that were no snitching. The police made sure for two years that they didn't produce evidence that they could have prevented the massacre if they would have executed the search warrant on Eric Harris. I bet no one was fired or even disciplined. You are correct. 
Number three, the police only galvanize and move in quickly for people classified as non-white suspects. Hmm. Years later, after Columbine, police run in the building and listen to kids get shot rather than secure the perimeter. Uvalde. Hmm. How to think about that? They did run in. I said Nashville earlier. Now that transgender individual was classified as white, and they did run in and bang, took care of that one pronto. I don't know. I think about that. Number four, only non-white people are negligent parents when it comes to wayward children. A man. I said I cannot imagine a universe. So Leroy and Jamal go shoot up the school, and it's just like this. Leroy had felonies, <laughs> had been building pipe bombs before, and suspended from school, and writing violent term papers, and all the rest of it. Man. Leroy's parents, Leroy's grandparents, Leroy's aunties, uncles, all of y'all going to jail. <laughs> like, come on. Number five, non-black children are always victims, even if they are murdered. Mm. 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 Thanks for the book club. Very informative. Yes, I've learned a lot. Worked my brain computer quite a bit on this uh, selection. Okay, let's see. Uh, Star 6-1, don't wait till the last one. Oh, wait, wait, pretty much the last one. Make sure I get my comment. Matter of fact, can I get the other report in? Let's see. Wow. I'm so glad I found it. So this is from the Denver Post from July 25th, 2000, or excuse me, July 25th, 1999. Minorities are Columbine too. That's the title. As the mother of one of the only 16 African-American students at Columbine High School, Tammy Thuse waited in terror for six hours after hearing that a black youth was among those feared dead April 20th in the worst school shooting in U.S. history at that time. When she finally learned her son was saved, she grieved for his best friend, Isaiah Scholes, who was called a Negro by one of the gunmen before he was killed. Theus reluctantly let her 15-year-old Tyrone Garrett return to classes. Then on June 2nd, the day students were allowed back into Columbine to pick up their belongings, she was stunned when she walked into a girl's bathroom written in ink on a stall. Theus said the word th- said were the words, "I wonder why the niggers and Mexicans don't go back where they came from, the other side of the rock." In quotes. That's when she withdrew Tyrone from the school. But Theus hasn't walked away from what she and a group of other parents of minority students at Columbine say are chronic problems that existed at the school, problems the school district is addressing long before Eric Harris and Dylan Clebo killed 12 students and a teacher. Columbine has always had this image of, we are Columbine, said Theus, referring to the cheer that gained new emotional meaning after the shootings. But not everyone has felt included, she said. We're asking for a change in the school and the district so when other minorities come, they don't have to feel unwelcome or feel that they aren't good enough or aren't smart enough, Thea said. The letterhead for the parent group reads, Concerned Columbine Minority Parents, We Are Columbine Too. The parents say they no longer will put up with school officials who ignore hateful graffiti hurtful or threatening remarks, harassment, intimidation, and low expectations and lack of support from teachers. 
And while their focus is on minority students, they want a climate that benefits all, they said. They note that Harris and Klebold laughed derisively as they killed students, targeting not just shoals, but jocks, in quotes, a boy with glasses from whom they called a nerd and a girl who says, yes, she believed in God. I hope they're not propagating that whole Casey Bernal thing. Anyway, theaters who carried a cross in memory. Oh, God. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to skip that part. Though it took the events of April 20 to bring together the minority parents group and focus the media spotlight on school diversity issues, the J- Jefferson County Sheriff's School District, Jefferson County School District, actually began to address such problems following earlier racial incidents at Evergreen and Pomona High Schools. It created a district-wide diversity council, hired a diversity coordinator, and began developing special teacher training programs. Now, as the backbone of its overall response to the Columbine tragedy, the district will require teachers to take a course in culturally responsive teaching, in quotes, Teachers explore their own upbringing to better understand how cultural differences can affect how a student does in school. This is about creating a classroom where everyone is a part of the community, said Deputy Superintendent Cindy Stevenson. We want a climate that values diversity and diverse people. We want educational equity for all kids. District officials and members of the minority parents group say they are working together on solutions and meeting meetings that began earlier this month. Now the parents are very astute, very clear about the issues, really focused on how we make a better environment for these kids. Of 1,965 students enrolled at Columbine last year, 16 were black. That's where I said, like, gee whiz, like, and you got Isaiah Shoals, like, <laughs> it's 2,000 students there, 16 are black, come on, come on. And 112 are Hispanic. The concerned Columbine minority parents report a range of issues centering on lack of respect and low expectations for their children. Last fall, for example, 17-year-old Crystal Archuleta struggled with some complex geometry problems. College was looming, and the junior didn't want an F in the course to mar her transcripts. But when she asked the teacher for help, she said, I shouldn't worry about it because I'm a minority, and colleges make exceptions for minorities. That's so fit. Not anymore. No more of that affirmative action. Get on out of here. <laughs> Not lowering standards for you all. Let me see. I'm going to skip down a little bit, see if I want to share. Uh, uh, let's see. Now, I'm, uh, Amaro said a, a minorities too often are steered into undemanding courses and then forced to take low paying jobs because they lack needed skills. He wants more for his daughter. I made this commitment that my kids would not be field workers, he said. I also don't want my kids taking shop while the Anglo kids take math and science and other subjects that will help them get ahead in life. D'Angela said he could not speak for the teacher, but he thought the matter had been resolved after the teacher agreed to help Archuleta. But the complaint resurfaced when the Amaros met Denise Norman and learned that her 15-year-old son, Justin, had problems with the same teacher. He was getting D's and F's. And I didn't know about it until the sixth week grade period, said Norman, spokeswoman for the minority parents group. You think the teacher would have called up and said, hey, your son is having problems. When I called her, it took her two days to get back to me. The teacher could not be reached for comment. They even mentioned, uh, we mentioned, or we had uh, Corey Ruthfield, make sure I get her name correct, but 
we played her segment way back at the very beginning of all of this and she talked about the racism that she experienced at the school Whitfield I said it incorrect Corey Whitfield uh, it even says that uh, I'll read the little portion about that to wrap it up it says parent Lynn Whitfield praised the way that DeAngelis dealt with a racial slur targeted at her 17 year old daughter Corey she said Corey who will be a senior was called a nigger during her freshman year Whitfield said she reported the incident to DeAngelis and was happy with the response. The name caller was suspended and both girls had to be had to meet with a counselor for diversity and sensitivity training. So it was a white female who called her a negra. Hmm. Anyway, uh, that is from the report. Minorities are Columbine 2 from the Denver Post by Andrew Guy Jr. and Janet Bingham. 1999 a few months after the shooting uh, quickly I'll, I'll get in my uh, one or two notes and then we can wrap and then we'll finish the book next week have to double check to see if we have two audio segments or if it'll be enough as it normally is but either way we are all done next Thursday uh, let's see notes that I took from the basement tapes this, he said this before about Dylan wanting to be a good boy. What is this based on? Is this the same guy, like I said, who in those police files that they didn't want to release, talking about him, both of them being bullies to other people, harassing females in class and such, all the rest of it, and even their criminal, other people seeing them with a gun out in public, out putting up graffiti and such off the pigs around town like come on man I, I don't even know it he said before that Dylan wanted to be a spiritual man a godly man and a good boy come on come on let's see he says deking Dylan was leaking indiscriminately now I don't know what he means with this at all uh, if you mean him writing this report in school and some of the other things where he's saying that this oh, public displays about these pipe bombs, they had been doing and for <laughs> at prom. This is in a different report at prom, the weekend before the attack. There were signs that said it's coming, and the date for prom, which was April 17, someone went and scratched that out and wrote it's coming 420. Now it was 419. It got rescheduled to 420, and 420 is, you know, hey, that's Cannabis Day and what have you. So, could have been that. But oh man, there's so many other incidents of them telegraphing. We're gonna do it. almost like they're taunting individuals. There's one in the police file. Uh, white female student. She looks at Eric's shirt. He's got that KM, the German group KMFDM or whatever it is. He's wearing that. She's like, mm, what radio station is that on? And he looks at her, gets an attitude like, what? You joke? Uh, that's funny okay okay wait till Monday let's see what happens that sort of thing it's lots of that in the police report and what have you so I mean if you want to call that so called leaking like the other one I think he was standing outside the library and someone came up and I said what what are you doing he said I'm just planning for my project for Tuesday and they came and blew up the school the next day or tried to like it was lots of that sort of thing happening leading up to all of this if you want to call that leaking to me, that is no evidence of, I don't want to do this. Even when they asked Dylan, like, he wrote this violent paper of you wearing a trench coat and blowing and killing people in the school and jocks and all. What's what's going on? He's like, oh, it's just, it's just a paper. That would have been a time, right? They'd been, Man, I don't know. I'm a little scared that Eric is trying to make me do things. I'm not coming. None of that. None of that. 
Let's see. All this fusillade saw Dylan give himself away with his eyes, and I mean, this is removed. Cullen didn't see it. Like, I'd much rather see this uh, myself so that I can determine now, does he look like this is just a put on and, you know, this is just a show for us and he doesn't really want to do this. Like, let me let me see. And in fact, even I can give you a short detail, apparently, because I didn't see the clips either. But apparently the morning before they go do the killings, Eric Harris is on the camera. You can hear Dylan. Let's go. Let's go rushing him like we don't have all day long man you can't you know we don't have 30 minutes for you to make a soliloquy say goodbyes and let's get the bombing killing children that to me does not sound like someone who is i'm just a little puppy and you gotta leave me along and i don't really want to do this no 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 you heard in fact you heard that in the clip that i played they said equal partners uh let's see Again, I've seen a number of people who did see these reports. I've not heard anyone talk about remorseful Eric. He was sorry about this or sorry how it was going to impact his parents. I've heard people, some people mention that he did say that, but that was not something like, oh, that needs to be emphasized or maybe he didn't want to do this. No. It was, wow, did you see all the rest of it and them showing off all the weapons and bombs that they had? Like, I've not heard anyone who was significantly impressed or taken aback with his, you know, oh, sorry, mom, dad. If they even noted it, it was just, oh, wow, you know, maybe not quite the total psychopath that we've thought. Eh. Anyway, back to all, did you see all the bombs that he had in his room? How did his parents miss? That's most of what the focus that I've heard from people who actually saw the tapes Cullen not in that number we will wrap it all up next Thursday tomorrow we'll be here neutralizing workplace racism compensatory call in and in fact on Monday another Columbine guest from a different part of the world and she wrote about white person who wrote about Columbine specifically but that'll be Monday early Monday since they're not in the US but more Columbine content to come hopefully it has been informative what does it mean to be white much obliged for folks tuning in writing in Uh, again sobriety would be best lots of reasons based on what we read in this book creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. I'm a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned.